0: Premiering Wednesday, Beyond Westworld. The question, how do you kill a man who may be a machine? A scientific genius has built human-like robots programmed to endanger the world. He's planted a robot on a nuclear sub. The mission, locate and destroy it. Watch Beyond Westworld. Premiering Wednesday at 8, 7 central. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> the its all over. Even uh, it's, a, it's a little hot in here, tonight. Like. Yeah, it's hot. Well, you know, it's uh, that attic space. <laughs> since we messed it. up the basement right? <laughs> you when know, I loved yeah. doing our. Yeah, my mom won't let us back down in the basement After because our of dirty our, dancing our dirty <laughs> dancing, fiasco, blood on the carpet. You can't get blood <laughs> out of a white carpet. Realize, even if you use hydrogen peroxide, you can't get blood out of a white carpet. And you can't get blood out of a stucco ceiling. He yeah, said staccato, yeah. stucco ceiling up there.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So now we've been relegated well, it's to with the- Well, also all the uh, black
2: lights your parents have. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> really bring out the fluids. And yeah, them. exactly. So it's funny. I used to bring, you know, all my old girlfriends would go down there. And you're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you can't. Your teeth are glowing. Yeah, you need to change that shirt. Yeah. Um, so yeah we're up in the attic now and we're again we have to watch our we, we can't get too crazy because if we stand we'll, we'll we'll probably impale our head in a nail <laughs> yeah i don't know if, i guess it's because the shingles yeah i guess shingles. that's what those
2: nails it's before. a long yeah
1: the long nails of the you know that just and put then nobody in.
2: ever puts like another
1: piece of no pli- uh, no hey my parents are trying to work at it. no but nobody ever does that <laughs> no if the you finish the attic things. you can't yeah, if you finish you know that. but yes yeah, if you like, like
2: greg brady style yeah, yeah like you're, you're you put can, a bedroom up there yeah you
1: can do that but a lot of times people like you know that's why i can get so cold and so hot but this attic fan just we, if we turn this on you won't hear anything yeah. it'd be like turning on like a uh, like a <laughs> dc9 <exhaust>. <laughs> you know um and then to also and then you gotta avoid the pink panther insulation yeah but and you then you put itchy. your foot through a member a couple months ago so uh that was lovely and then what was it <laughs> last week jesus we weren't even almost allowed back in my parents house because last week when we tried to redo in the basement the um Raiders of the Lost Ark scene. <laughs> you know, we, we took my dad's watch, uh, member, and we, and we, 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 we took it off of while he was sleeping with the watch on. Mm-hmm. So he almost shot us because he thought we were <laughs> prowlers. And, and it was just, you know, just a lot of stuff. Um, oh, man you got to start doing it at my house. <laughs> yeah, I know. But we pissed your mom off, too. We just make too much noise. That's the problem is we just get too giddy. We get too round up. The problem is we're, sleep we're, it's over. so late. You know, we're doing it. We're, since it's we're doing a, it traditional.
2: It's <laughs> not a proper sleepover unless you wake the parents up at
1: some point in yes. the middle of the night. And you know, as well as I do, that we've done that all the time. And we do that now. Our, our, our 30, mid-30s. When's it going yeah. yeah. <laughs> to When's it going to end? When's it going to end? <laughs> we've, we've, we've talked about that one before on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, just <laughs> completely derailing the, the you know you're so hyper you um you sobered up and then you know you, you're waking up the whole house.
2: Well, for Pete, just a quick to put people that in perspective
1: is we were at Deanne's house in the basement. Do we need to even I don't even remember if we do we even sign on anymore and say welcome to Santa Rosa just
2: The people know they, yeah. they know where they're at.
1: I hope you guys know. It's not you like they're stumbling
2: <laughs> onto this on like a radio station. I'm like what is this show? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. They're downloading it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But to put that in perspective, we were in the basement. Well, I'm Dion, and that's Blake. I'm Blake. That's Dion. Okay. That's a Saturday night movie
1: sleepover. Yeah. Check it. (laughs) Um,
2: We're in the basement. Yes. Middle of the night, laughing, having a good time, having a sleepover having a, a nice, like,
1: early tw- to mid-20s <laughs> sleep. Yeah, this was post-college. Yeah, so you'd come over and, uh, yeah, we were, I think we, we've said this, we told this one about six months ago, but, yeah, you were over because we hadn't seen each other in a while because, you know, college graduated, you went back home, I went this way. And yeah, then,
2: yeah. But, uh, so the basement, then there's a first floor. Yeah. And then your parents are on the second floor. Yes. And we were still loud enough to wake your dad <laughs>
1: Yeah, which I I think what it was is if you think about it, like, um, I think it's the hallway. So the stairs to get upstairs to the from the basement Mm -hmm. to the first floor, the ceiling to those stairs are the the stairs to the second floor. So I bet you it carried the noise up. And his closet is so his head's right by the closet and that <laughs> right there so he can hear all this, you know. The so, vent. Yeah. The, the 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 notorious vent. And then he heard everything. So who knows what the hell we were doing down there. You know, all the porno we were watching. All oh, the uh, all the crazy All st- the
2: USA Up All Night we were Yeah,
1: with uh what's her face and Gilbert Gottfried, that what's that girl? USA Up All Night. Um I forget that girl's remember. name. That was a long time ago. Yeah, anyway. I hope she's doing all right. Uh, so yeah, so the problem is, is that we have to just watch out. So it's hot as balls in here. No, now. We're in the attic, hotter space. than a wolf man's Not even
2: above the house. They put us in the attic space above the garage.
1: Above the garage, <laughs> so that we won't yeah. wake. We're, them we're, up. we're detached. We're over in the uh, the barn. It's and not even nice, like Fonzie's apartment. Yeah, it's not even. Yeah, they they can't even freaking. We got some old carpeting that they. <laughs> They carpeted some other room, and they had the leftover <laughs> pieces. So now they, they put that down. And, and since no one vacuums it, you know. We, Balancing like, on a couple yeah. of
2: two-by-fours.
1: Blake's next to the croquet set over here. And then, you know, I'm next to, like, some the other croquet stuff. croquet set over here. You know, I'm next to, like, my old skateboard and, you know. But um, anyway, moving yeah. on. Moving right along. So last week. Yes.
2: Our last episode, last two weeks ago, I Yes. Know. Last two weeks ago. We Last did two weeks ago. Was,
1: was, the full, was the introduction to the fall.
2: Was our fall introduction. Our third anniversary
1: giant size
2: episode. Yeah, the giant-sized.
1: Yeah, it was an extra quarter. <laughs> and it was huge. That was the longest one we had done. It longest was seven one,
2: hours. The <laughs> longest one to date. And I don't even think we really BSed that much on it. I think we really talked about the movie. <laughs> we really
1: <laughs> talked about the movie for at least... Over three hours. You could watch that movie twice. <laughs> and uh coincidentally, uh
2: we're doing Harrison Ford's follow-up to yeah. that
1: movie this year. It's funny, we had a lot of coincidence, coincidences this year because all the eighty sevens we've picked, which mm-hmm. was purely and we I can't emphasize that enough to our listeners that this that was purely coincidental that we picked all those eighty sevens. semi-coincidental.
2: Some of them were planned because of 87 yeah but a lot of them just ended up like happening yeah just then we're like holy crap but you know, then, well, let's
1: keep going and then this one is the same thing where it's just it's it's a happenstance that we did raiders and now we're, we're i don't know we're following um harrison's f- career
2: <laughs> yeah well you know there's a lot of excitement including excitement from me i don't know
1: about you but there's a new
2: blade runner movie.
1: coming yeah up. yeah so. it's, it's it's out this today when the, this this podcast premieres the, so the, i
2: was getting all excited <laughs> yeah blake got all
1: excited he said let's let's do some <laughs> <laughs> let's do some raid i was like let's do the original blade Runner.
2: let's do some raid runner and it just kind of came into uh the coincidence is that we did Raiders last year, last week.
1: Yeah, because that wasn't planned when we picked Blade Runner to do. We yeah, mapped no. Blade Runner out at the beginning of the year when we sat down with our Rolodexes, and yeah, yeah. we planned out up until Halloween. Our big desk yeah. Cal- calendar. <laughs> yeah, we had... <laughs> We physically brought our, our roll top desks, opened our roll top desks, and then we had our big calendars. But, and we were looking at you know. You're them, oh, yeah. What do you
0: got for that
1: day? Yeah. Oh, right. school lunch. What are you having for lunch that day? Okay, I'm gonna have the, I'm gonna have the uh, the hot. Pizza Fridays. Pizza Friday. I'm gonna French. I hate the French bread. Okay. Well. So yeah. So we planned Blade Runner back in. I don't know when it was because we looked at all the different. At uh, least early dates. summer, if not earlier
2: than that. I think it was
1: back in maybe spring or late yeah, winter. Yeah. We we laid everything out and then we like we said a couple weeks ago. We were a month ago. We only picked Raiders last minute because we were toggling with four or five. We're juggling what movie <laughs> yeah, that would yeah, fit. Yeah. So this was happenstance that they, that these are back to back. uh but then...
2: But interesting, I think. Yeah,
1: because the, then, then we're then I'll seeing... not put it in, in the
2: context.
1: Of what exactly he was... From one um, picture to the next movie, you know. And then you see what he's doing now. Uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so... Uh, good night, everybody. All right. Here we go. Yeah, Play all, right, right. all right. That was a, a good one. Yeah. Remember that scene? <laughs> well, that was cool. <laughs> Remember that scene where he said he... The memories are like raindrops. That's cool.
2: So Blade Runner, uh, in a w- it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark was, th- our, I think, our most iconic movie to date that we did. Yeah. I think Blade Runner is like our biggest topic
1: to date. Bigger than Raider because Raiders took a lot of prep because I know. I think but this we is nice. like we got the book, we got like five versions of the movie. There's seven <laughs> versions of the movie. We watched every single one. We the said, Blade came over Friday. <laughs> we both called out sick from work <laughs> from it our came day job Friday
2: morning. We've been watching Blade Runner,
1: up the Wazoo. And my mom was making us, you know, for, uh, grilled cheeses with some applesauce <laughs> for lunch, and then she's making us fish sticks for dinner. And then we had some elios last night and some juice boxes. Juice boxes. Yeah, we had some of those. Um, which are those? What are those? Uh, yeah, what? punch it. What do you call that? <laughs> well, the, yeah. What is that? It's, uh, Capri Suns? Maybe Suncoast something. Yeah, like that. Where it's the pa- it's the punch. Yeah, yeah. And then so my the dumbass I always take the. I take the, 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 the straw out and I try to punch it and I break the straw and I'm like come on. and then I dull the straw trying to break that pun. I'm like come on but uh, uh, for all intents and purposes yeah it is, it's, a, it's a monumental topic we've had our interns all week printing us out galores I know. and galores of knows, I
2: usually show up with minimal notes but I have None. probably the most notes I've ever had for the show yeah
1: like two pages of paper two pages of paper the uh, End's brought with him Encyclopedia But for, Encyclopedia uh, for everybody following
2: at home, yeah. we decided that we were going to <laughs> <This> <laughs> loosely is, base this podcast on the uh, international theatrical
1: cut of 82. So there's the U.S. theatrical cut, and then there was the international cut and then that international cut is the cut that was then subsequently released. On like VHS uh, and, and Laserdisc. Yeah, so that's the, the cut basically we all grew up with. So if we figure that that's era. the
2: most... Iconic? Sleepover-ish. Centric <laughs> version. Yeah. Until the 90s when the director's cut came on at yeah. VHS. And that
1: became my problem because I had... I mean, this kind of segues briefly into uh, uh, our recollections of this movie. But... Um, I had seen this movie so many times back in the day that by the time I started rewatching it in my teens, I was only rewatching probably the directors, the mm-hmm. the quote unquote nineteen ninety one director's cut with without the voiceover. And then for years it became they had never if you didn't have a laser player, they never re released the VHS copy. So it became hard to get. You couldn't get the theatrical or international cuts from 82 with the voiceover. So those became, I remember when I worked at the, the video store, I worked at the Tommy <coughs> K's, uh, that was sought after, that people still, you know, we still had the original. Uh, they wanted the theatrical. The version. theatrical versions, of the VHS set. And then with all these other cuts, for years you couldn't get any of those with all the, you know, you couldn't get the theatrical cuts until 2007 when they released that like big box set that comes out with the briefcase and you get a little spinner car and it looks like the oh, uh, yeah, Point yeah, Comp, I that, um, yeah, you know, it looks like the testing suitcase. Yeah, and my
2: dad got me that for Christmas.
1: Yeah, you broke that spinner out and you were playing <laughs> it, came with the little like faux origami. Uh, oh, um, the unicorn, the unicorn, yeah. Is it is it breakable or is it hard? It was like plastic. Oh, okay. It was like hard plastic. That'd be terrible if it's like actually you have some poor bastard chewing gum and (laughs) tin and everything (laughs) off. I've done ten, yeah, (laughs) burning out. So we decided to do that cut because there's so many. I mean, you look at this, I guess you were right, because I, you see I have stuff written down. I've I know. Dion's it. got like an indecipherable uh, sheet of like the the writing is so tight. Is so tight. <laughs> He's going to need a <laughs> jeweler's loop. Not, I, loop I'm, <laughs>
0: I'm
1: chain smoking in here. Uh, you're right. I, I, as you think about it, I started doing this prep probably three weeks ago because to read the book, Yeah. and I'm such a slow reader because I think I have dyslexia, so I, I, to read the book, and then watch the movie, and then read all about it on the internet. Internets. It's, interlet. Interlets. It's it's a monumental in, and um kind of uh, I wouldn't say like it, it's it's all it's very uh, it, it, it's very not off putting, but it's it's almost like very uh, you know almost turned you off from how it's a much. Bear. Yeah. You know, bear this one <laughs> yeah so um and and also to do it kind of a semi kind of a justice as well because you know we're not intellectuals we 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 no, you know, we talk a good yeah, game but we, we don't know you know we we like to put that on the table that we're, we're not pseudo- going to come on here and felicit about and philosophize mm-hmm. about you know <laughs> full flay fishes felicity felicity jones and stuff so we like to uh you know talk about stuff as the layman i will say that <clears throat> I'm kind of, uh, I was excited by the prospect of doing
2: this until we, until the enormity of
1: <laughs> the situation I mean, this is one of those came movies into, came clear. where with that box set, you have a freaking three and a half hour documentary just on yeah. it. So and, that's it's like- and then like a whole other disc of other each, supplemental and footage. And when you when you search each disc out, you find out each cut has, has supplementals on each disc and you're like, when is this gonna end?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when's it gonna end?
1: Yeah, my dad wanted his TV back. <laughs> He wants to watch the game. He wants to watch the football, you know.
2: But uh, so my history with Blade Runner is a short one. I remember it from when I was little, as we've discussed uh, on the podcast and in private conversation with uh, with our Facebook family of sleepover maniacs. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. In our day, we uh,
1: (laughs) we should get them all ripping shirts.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Back in our day, you know, there wasn't a lot of. our parents didn't put a lot of restriction
1: on viewing things. Yeah. We've talked about what restrictions. But it shouldn't seem like just us. It seemed like that was kind yeah, of the culture. Well,
2: you know. It, it like turned out all right. Parents are like, yeah, you know, these are the same parents that, like, smoked cigarettes
1: and drank fucking whiskey yeah, while they, they were pregnant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they wouldn't <laughs> now belt they would not even in. eat
2: peanut butter yeah.
1: if you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they, they, would seat belt <laughs> us, they wouldn't seatbelt us in. They'd smoke with, like, <laughs> windows shut in the car, you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> it was a different style of parenting
2: back then. Um, not better or worse, just different. Uh, and so I remember seeing it when I was young, probably too young to really understand anything. I'm not sure I fully understand it. I'm
1: still, I'm still <laughs> fully understand the movie. I don't even know if I get I took a college. Class but, you know, it. I
2: remember we would rent videos from Rite Aid, which we've talked about many times. Yeah. And uh, my dad's house. So I remember seeing it when I was young, certainly didn't see it at the movie theater. I don't think, um, and then I didn't really see it again until the director's cut in the early 90s, 91, 92, yeah. when it came out uh, on VHS. And then uh, around that time is when I started really getting into movies, uh, you know, started to become a cinephile. Yeah. So I rented a den and didn't like it. And I probably. pre college? Yeah, pre college. Oh, so probably, like probably like middle school or high school. Yeah. Uh, and then. I don't know if I watched it again since then. But then when it came out in the final cut version in like 2007,
1: maybe. um, Well, because they had a 2002 cut, which was like a, what do they call that? The the director's, it's it's something else, the director's cut or whatever. And then you have the final cut. Because Ridley at the time was doing something. Yeah.
2: They they definitely had a re-release. I don't think they released it. Maybe they did on- by that time, maybe DVD. They might have came out with a DVD of it. <laughs> but when they released the final cut in 2007, uh, it played at the Ziegfeld. Oh, I know this story, you best. And I was living in New York at the time, uh, alone. <laughs> it, was a, it was a weird time
1: in my life. Uh, you listened to a lot of Sinatra at night. There was a lot of... Uh, <laughs> the ballads. The, the, <laughs> if,
2: the infamous Rocky story is from that period of my life. Um, and uh, it played at the Ziegfeld, which... As far as I know, it was the last like real old style movie house in New York.
1: Yeah, I'd never been, sadly. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's since, it's since closed. I know. That's why I'm the so last upset. the last thing to play there was Force Awakens. I and what think. does that tell you, people? Don't put off your dreams. <laughs> Don't do them now.
2: And I would go there sometimes. Uh, it wasn't my. It wasn't always my movie theater of choice. Um, because one, it was like one screen, so you they only played like one movie.
1: But it's it, for for um, for people who don't realize, it's a proper old fashioned movie house in the traditional sense of the old days of almost like, uh, like vaudeville the or, or folly. Yeah, so that's what. It, <laughs> so for you know, for, so prior to you know uh, cinema, you have you know it, 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 one of those proper places that have like would have like a stage show and like you know a proper um, vaudeville thing. But today, up until it closed, it was a beautifully in interior it' was almost like the muppets the show. interior was yeah. the outside looked updated yeah
2: but uh the interior looked pretty authentic and as you walk up the stairs to get to the movie theater like there red was velvet, like, right there was window yeah a lot of like red velvet and they would have like display cases where they displayed like the old like Ziegfeld Follies stuff oh, you I, know I didn't know that and <laughs> uh and then the, you go walk into the movie theater there wasn't really a balcony
1: because um, the, they didn't let the back in the day they didn't let the, the poor people <laughs> <laughs> Ziegfeld was only for the high class but it was a fun theater to go see of course in. and, and then it didn't... also was in New York it was the where they would do premieres like, oh yeah it was a lot of like so like in LA they do at the Chinese theater in New York they do it at the, Z- the Ziegfeld yeah. they'd have like the red carpet and stuff yeah that's where all like the big premieres were yeah. and it's right close to our New York City studios it's right up 6th <laughs> Avenue from where we are now
2: uh, and it's also a really big screen because it's a very long theater yeah uh you know, like it's deep, <laughs> you know, it's not tall, like I said, there's no real balcony, yeah, there's like a an elevated spot towards the back that I don't know if that was how it originally was, or they did that later. but it was a very long theater, so the distance from the screen to the back of the theater was pretty great. So they had a very big screen for a movie theater, not as big as like an IMAX obviously, but probably almost as big as like the faux IMAX. When they, when they decided to show IMAX movies in regular, like, AMC movie theaters. And then charge you the same amount of money and not tell you. <laughs> and it's really, like, half the size of an actual yeah. IMAX movie. you're screen. like, something's wrong here. <laughs> so I went to go see... The re-release. The, the, re, the final cut. Yeah. And, and the final cut... You know, he they pulled a little bit of a Lucas, but not too much. It was like the digital stuff they did was like remove the wires. Yeah. Maybe move some of the flames over so they matched up with the smokestacks a little bit they, better they in the long shot. They took shots. Joanna
1: Cassidy's <coughs> face and they rotoscoped her face on the, the, yeah, stunt, so like woman the run stunt woman. Yeah, so like the stunt woman wasn't as evident. But yeah. for
2: the most part, it was pretty true. I mean, they just cleaned it up.
1: Yeah. Uh, they just did that with Terminator 2. They released the 3D version I saw and they did the similar. In- and like. I was sitting in that movie theater and that movie started... And
2: I like literally out, out, like said out loud, like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And then in my head, I remember thinking
1: specifically, like, quote, like movies used to look so awesome. <laughs> when well, you, you you see that, you're saying you see like that that establishing shot of like the flames yeah, and the, that, the that car spinners. And the spinners are coming around yeah. and, like, and then the, they go like, the, the geisha ca- woman on yeah. the side, the it was like, Holy
2: shit. Cause you forget. Yeah. Like with with CGI and everything, how like what things used to look like, and how you awesome. you're seeing it projected, and on, and you like certainly a... don't get to see it on the like projected on a big screen yeah. that much anymore. And I really was like, it, I like it was love at first sight. Like, Dropped your popcorn, <laughs> 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 like that that open like that city opening happened, and I was just like. I felt like a kid again. Yeah, I remember you've told you've told me you regaled me this for yeah, years. because it really yeah. was Moved like you. an emotional, of course, <laughs> like response. Like I really, it really impacted me. So I've told this story. I mean, I might have even told this story on the show at some point, even though we weren't talking about this movie. But Dion knows the story because it literally yeah. it made such a huge impact on me.
1: So then now every time when I think of the Ziegfeld, I think about Blake's memory. Like, oh, that's that time Blake saw on. And He says, "Well, wow, that was real," because a lot of people I work with saw that re release too. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why I missed it, but. <laughs> And it was unfortunate that you missed it, because it was like... I would have loved to have seen it. To have seen it, and, but to
2: see it in that yeah. theater, it was really neat. But it really was like, I literally fell in love with it the minute... Uh, this movie is problematic, to say the least, but because of that screening, that experience, it was also a weird part, part point in my life, and I was reassessing a lot of things, and to have that happen... It was like oh, I saw it at the perfect time for me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like I needed it yeah. at that moment, and it was there for me. It's pure escapism. Yeah, and it just like it hit me, and I was like, holy shit! Uh, and I've loved that movie for the last ten years now. Yeah, uh, before that, I wasn't really that big of a fan. It took that experience to see it on the big screen. You know, it wasn't even so much that it was the final cut because I didn't wasn't even that familiar with it other than that. Like I said, I had probably seen the original VHS release in the 80s when I was a kid, too young to really even remember the details of it. Saw the director's cut in the 90s. Was thought it was okay. Didn't love it. And then probably my third viewing of it was that. I was like, holy crap. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've, I've now watched them, this movie various cuts many times in the last 10 years. <laughs> since You I have
1: had. not. I have. You have. Okay.
2: Because I, I fell in love with it. Like it really... Like, I love this movie. Yeah. And it was because of that. So because of that, and then they released that box set that you were talking about in the briefcase.
1: Corresponding in 2007 with that theatrically released.
2: which which has the U.S. theatrical cut, the international international theatrical cut, the director's cut from the early 90s, the final cut, and the work print
1: version. And I feel like there's one more on there, too, that early 2002 cut, which I don't know what the difference is. Which, uh... I don't think so. I think that was maybe just the re-release of the... Is that what it is? I thought they
2: did something CGI-ish to it. Uh, but, uh and now it's on DVD and not like the standard DVD box set of that is basically that box set minus...
1: Yeah, all the belt and the... Bell's the briefcase
2: stuff. and the toys.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah, you can get that on DVD or Blu-ray. Uh And so <clears throat> I was excited
2: <clears throat> by the prospect of doing this movie. And in typical... Uh, Sleepover, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers fashion. We were trying to think about, like, what would our angle of, on it be? Like, what could we talk about that hasn't been talked about a million times? And though, uh you know, we'll definitely get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, we usually are pretty heavy on that kind of stuff. I'm not positive we should talk about that stuff too much because it,
1: that... We picked the hardest way c- to f- to go after this movie. Because...
2: <laughs> I would, I mean, obviously we'll get into the things that we find interesting about the make about the making of it and stuff, but really like that Dangerous Days documentary on that box set and then all the supplemental stuff on that extra disc of supplemental stuff. I mean, anything you really want to know about the making of this movie, you can find there. So uh, if, if you're titillized... By this conversation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If those breasts of yours are titillized, (laughs) I would recommend
2: that that's the place to go and uh, check that. And so, you know,
1: lengthy, but it's almost as lengthy as um, the alien. Yeah, uh, box almost. set special features. Those that's, things are another. Yeah, but the
2: Alien box set's like we're talking four movies.
1: Yeah, and each one is like three you hours know, long. So I watched <laughs> the Alien. I watched Ridley Scott's Alien special features, and that was just as long as yeah, this. Yeah, I was you say, know, because like, like that's like four movies. This is one movie. You can like, get to I California know. quicker than you can <laughs> <laughs> sit down the couch. That's why it took me. I mean, you know, to do uh, homework after school, I had to watch. Two weeks ago, I had it was my only time like I had like a th- three and a half hour, or at least a four hour chunk. Yeah, because you know you, you're going to be getting up, going to the bathroom, you're going to be pausing it. I've got two animals; one's going to want to go out, one's going to want attention. So, so you need a whole chunk. So my one day off that Saturday, the entire yeah. day I spent uh, doing that, and then reading the book, and then doing the watching the other cuts with you over the past two days. where you and I just been living in our PJs. <laughs> You know, sitting really too close to the TV. You know, of course, we had to monopolize the biggest TV in the house. My dad's TV, so he couldn't watch TV. So we've been doing... I think I do agree with you. This has been the most prep, you know... Even my wife at one point was like, "Does Blake do as as much prep as this as you do?" I'm like, "He does." I'm like, "He does." Just, <laughs> just get away. Go. Go do something. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it
2: was pretty. Uh, it was pretty labor intensive. And probably
1: because we've been doing these big movies too. We did yeah. Raiders. We did RoboCop. We did um. Like There's something else big in there. That they're, they're pe- Predator was Predator. That's long. it. Predator. So they're big movies for people. You know. So, and we feel.
2: The responsibility.
1: Yeah, well, feel We weight feel weight on our shoulders Yeah, we, feel obligated. we have to deliver something that yeah. people are going to appreciate. Uh, and try to give something new, like you said. Bring a fresh look to it, because I'm sure this has been talked into nauseam in written form. I mean, I freaking think... academics have written complete books on yeah, this. Yeah. So what the hell are we going to say that's different from other dudes? You know, thinking about
2: that viewing that I had in 2007 that made me fall in love with this movie. I'm now, just now, and right now, at this at this very moment, kind of realizing that it also... I watched movies very differently post film school, yeah, uh, than I did pre, pre prior to that. So, I think maybe it w- also some of that. The thing about I, I you know, Dion knows, and, and we've talked about it because we did Deep Red, and I talked about the Three Mother trilogy with James uh, from Wrong Real, Argento
1: movies, yeah. I
2: feel like for me, I identify with Blade Runner in much the same way I identif- identify with Dario Argento movies and a, and a lot of Italian horror, but specifically Dario Argento, because Dario Argento's movies are such, so uh, reliant on visual aesthetic. Like, to me, the story of Blade Runner is here or there. Tap like, it, yeah. yeah, it's like it's fine. It, uh, there's things about it. I think it's a clunky movie in a lot of ways. Uh, from. You know, just shots, you know, for instance, uh, when he's, when Harrison Ford's given Sean Young, the uh, one contest. Yeah. And then she says something and then it cuts to a reaction shot from Tyrell. It's like clear that's like from a different, like you see, it's an over the shoulder shot well, you know, of, there's, of Harrison Ford, there's but they're a trying couple, to fake it yeah, to make it seem like it's a reaction shot from Tyrell. So it's, it's clunky and, and the, and I feel like the story's a little bit clunky and that, and I don't. And I don't mean any of this in a negative way because I love the movie.
1: Uh, Even some of the cuts for me, I found to be a little weird because when you realize how much, you know, Ridley Scott was a guy notorious to do takes up into the double digits. And then you realize when you, knowing that, and then you see what he chooses to use, maybe it wasn't him In in the final cut as in what was put onto the screen in 82, you realize... You think you would have extended a shot, yeah. or you would have used a, a, a you know a different take, like specifically at the beginning when um, uh, the Holden, the Blade Runner character, who's killed at the beginning by Byron James, yeah. when he when there's a quick cut of him hitting the desk, and yeah. like I would have thought they would have held on that longer. What they do in the work print cut, which I looked a lot liked a lot better, mm-hmm. or again for me at the end when. Daryl Hannah gets shot and f- flies against the, the wall. Well, yeah. You see in the outtakes, like he had some poor son of a bitch all day jumping to the wall. <laughs> so you think they would have used a better whacking into the wall and coming yeah, down. It's yeah. just so sudden, you yeah. know? So I see a lot of that, what you mean, you know? But uh, in,
2: what I mean by, in terms of the story, it's like the story's pretty straightforward, you know? And And for me as a viewer, what I love about it is... Uh, what I say, when I used to teach the horror class, I used to teach a horror class and I would show Dario Argento movies to the kids and I would, to the students, and I would say like, look. Yeah, he's talking to the garden There's <laughs> <laughs> people that love Dario Argento and there's people that don't like Dario Argento. There's many few people, there's just a few people that are like, could go either way on dar Argento, like he's almost polarizing in that way and it's because like you either and i used to recommend to them you just have to sit and watch it and let the movie kind of wash over you like you have to watch asperia and just let it like don't think too hard about it don't try to follow what's happening in it just let it happen experience it and when it's done it either connects with you on some level or it doesn't and that's fine either one's fine i mean it's art you either have an, uh, some kind of response or you don't. Uh I feel this way about Blade Runner. Like I feel like if you try to and like you said there are people that have written books about it, but to me as a viewer like if you try to get too deep into it, I feel like you almost ruin it. There's something about just like sitting in a movie theater or sitting in front of just your big screen TV it. and just letting It happened in front of you. Yeah. And just experience it. It's a visceral experience. More so than most movies. uh, American movies at this time. Like Hollywood style movies. You know, Dario Argento is an exception. You know, a movie like that... Uh, Dion didn't care for when we saw in college but a movie that I liked a lot was Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker, Stalker which, Stalker's a uh, I, you know that's something I should really go back beat. I mean that one's like a four hour movie I but.
1: know but that's something I should go back with go back and look at because I have a friend of mine who I work with who is a careman who's Russian and he yeah. immigrated here from St. Petersburg in the early 90s funny enough learned how to speak fluent English by watching Seinfeld <laughs> he sat here just watching Seinfeld yeah. and he's a wonderful so guy he now like this <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what's
2: up with all you people? I don't know. What's going on with America? He's
1: like, Stalker it's a great movie. Yeah, this is crazy. You gotta go see it. <laughs> I mean, come on. What's up with Gilligan's Island? The professor can make a coconut out of a radio, but a radio? Out of a coconut, but he can't fix a whole boat. Um, but he, I brought that up to him. He's like, Stalker's an institution. He's yeah, like, yeah. Stalker. It's a Every, big in like, Russia. A everybody big knows stalk. he's like, Stalker. He's like, Stalker is brilliant. He's like, it is so meta. It is brilliant. And then he found it for me on YouTube and. And he's like, you, you should go watch it now. And, uh, <laughs> well, know. even
2: Tarkovsky's Solaris is, Yeah, is Solaris like is it. great.
1: There's certain movies,
2: but it's very rare that you get like a Hollywood
1: movie. Yeah. In my opinion, I would even put up, for instance, um, 77 Sorcerer, William Freakin's Sorcerer. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, so,
2: yeah. Well, William Freakin has a, yeah, he has that kind a of a, a p-
1: propensity to do stuff that's kind of more art house yeah. in a way where you don't get that traditionally from like a, you know, the. Scorsese, Spielberg, you know, you yeah. get a little more. I mean, maybe Coppola maybe does that to a certain extent. In some yeah. of his movies, when he is able, like Apocalypse Now, well, Apocalypse
2: Now, you know is that. Well, yeah, and when I you're could able totally to like meditate, you
1: know. That. But a lot of the problems today, I think, we're getting a little off topic. But I think you, you don't have the freedom to do that. Yeah, because true. you have too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, have these and twenty year old as execs. We found out there were many cooks in, the yeah, in, kitchen, this, in for this movie too. So, you didn't, you, so he was having problems from <laughs> the get go. But um, it's
2: just. Uh, Because I I wasn't able to watch movies that way in my, like, pre-film school. And I don't even think it's film school wasn't even what did it. No. What allowed me to tap into that. It was really, I think, falling in love with Argento and stuff like that. Uh seeing movies that you had never seen before seeing, realizing that movies can be this other thing that when you're a teenager and you only have access to your local video store, Dion uh, had a really great local video store that had these kinds of movies that I didn't. So me, you know, I captain video, which was a great video store, but it was a lot of like straight to video. And the, yeah,
1: they had a great freaking, I remember I bought a, when that thing was going out of business, when I was up over your house, I bought a couple of good things. From yeah, that.
2: yeah, but I didn't have like Best Video, yeah, yeah, which yeah. had you know, which With was like Mister
1: Moto, all the stuff out of print and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. had like
2: a really great like classic or foreign section and stuff like that. So it, it took being introduced to things like uh, Repulsion by Polanski and Dead Ringers by David Cronenberg, movies that are operating on some different level. And I think in a lot of ways, Blade Runner is. Operating on a different level, and I don't even know so much intellectually,
1: but viscerally, stylistically, certainly, it is um, to a certain intellect. Because I think it's a lot of these things are debatable, uh, e- either done by on purpose or uh, by accident. A lot of stuff's left ambiguous, yeah. For, for, so you can choose your own adventure in it, and that's why you get such hard partisans on it, where you know they they almost get the fisticuffs about their feelings of it, which a lot of stuff, if you just go read the book, do we enter a dream of electric sheep kind of clarify a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean that means that blade Runner the movie is taking the same stance as the book. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, so that's where the confliction comes. So in. blade runner comes out in 1982. Whole, so my quick backstory about this is I remember watching this alongside of, uh, you know, Terminator back then and, and, uh, uh, empire strikes back. We had this on a tape and I remember really, uh, polarizingly watching the beginning. With Byron James and that, I didn't understand. You know, you don't understand stuff when you're little. And seeing yeah, that you know. opening scene and then killing that guy, yeah. and I must have made it. I do it through remember the, uh, like the turtle talk. Yeah, Oh like, well, yeah, that's the, and then you turn I was, it over. Yeah, and I'm it's unco- big in and, the sun and I I'm remember that un- as a kid. Yeah, that's I remember that too. I'm getting uncomfortable too. Like Byron James, I'm like, yeah, yeah. why isn't he turning the turtle over? <laughs> <laughs> dad, dad, what is what is why he- is he turning the turtle over? You know, so I remember that scene. I remember the stuff like in the rain, the blade, like you blade runner, like I remember that. Of course, the iconic, you know, the geisha and the coke signs and the spinners flying around and the propensity for raining in the early 80s uh people may not remember uh acid rain was a huge like worry and fear Mm -hmm. you know so that people so that was the whole thing like it's acid rain that's raining i remember all that and i remember specifically them going to see uh what's his face james hung uh-huh. And, and his uh I made your eye yeah, I, I remember that whole sequence and, and me being very scared too, because of the you know you have that the, yeah, yeah. the heaviness of the two uh Howard and Byron James with him. and then uh like those are the things I remember. and then like you know Harrison Ford killing Joanna Cassidy running on the car, shooting mm-hmm. through the glass, and then I remember the ending. Bit with in the in um the bradbury building yeah and yeah. the whole ending up until like him dying on the rain and
2: yeah prior to the <clears throat> 91 or 92 director's cut that's all i really had i had memories of like imagery yeah which is just like the perfect if you're gonna remember a movie, yeah just images of a movie this is a great movie to remember because they're so gorgeous yes yeah. uh, but yeah there was a lot of that stuff like narratively wise really i remember this the tort the tortoise the turtle uh, talking about you yeah, know, talking about the turtle in the mine comp or the uh, mine <laughs> yeah like, the, uh, the, the void, void com- comp test
1: yeah, yeah. comp test and and then just like like you just yeah. like like I remember I understood the plot he's going after these guys because they're fugitives I you know I I I understood it to that and they're robots and that's all and yeah, then yeah. and then up until this screening I've had a really hard delineation realizing. I don't know why, but I've always traditionally thought that they were androids. They were mechanized cyborgs underneath. But then that changes. That's very another ambiguous point where you realize this this is movies heavily based on genetics. So they're not. They're almost you know, they're they're grown in, like, a test tube, it sounds like. But then that's different kind of from the book. So it's very confusing. So when I was little, I used to think they're, like, Terminators, like robots. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then I – so then, you know, I remember that and then the ending and then I remember really liking the movie and it being dark and then it being, like, the, you know, 80s sci-fi movie. Like, that's the movie people would look at, like, Blade Runner or something else in its own category aside from, like, an E.T. or something else or The Thing, which was a a big thing for me when I was little, John Carpenter's. So then – I knew it well enough, and then when, when the 90s came around, I guess, um, when the 91 cut came out, I watched that. And then like you, I didn't like it as much, mm-hmm. because I think it's harder f- to understand. You have to jump with a lot of things, because when the narration's taken out, you have to try to make these leaps yourself and mm-hmm. what's going on. And, and then in the early 2000s, I have, Blade Runner was one of the first movies that came on DVD. Came on DVD. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have really that DVD. DVD yeah. yeah, And I have that very simple Warner Brothers. if it's There's Warner like Brothers. Like, pan it scan kind on of one side, and you flip yeah, it you flip and the and disc cool. over, and it and it has that weird opening where it clicks open the box, and yeah. it has interactive menu, maybe a trailer, you know. And then when it came out like on Blu-ray in two thousand two or three, I have that. And then this this box set coming out in two thousand seven, I watched the crap. I remember being at work and how psyched people were. And how the draw was that, like, oh my God, they're going to have this documentary called Dangerous Days that's going to be super long, and they've gotten Harrison Ford to talk about the movie. And then, yeah. all Not of much. us, yeah, <laughs> just a little. And all of us, we huddled around a laptop at work. We hit the trailer, we watched, and then you see at the end of the trailer they show Harrison Ford, and he's saying something about it. And you're like, holy shit, they've got him to, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I remember how big of a deal that was at coming out. What, uh, what edition you're going to get? The regular one? You're going to get the, the briefcase edition with the spinner? You know, it was a huge deal. And then I remember watching. Final cut, then and then I had plans to, like, you know, in a couple years watch the work print. I watched this and then, like, you know, you get just too busy, you know. So, I hadn't until this viewing, I hadn't never watched the work print or the original international cut from 82. And, like you said, since the 80s, I'd never watched the work print at all, yeah. yeah. And then I had never watched the, the work print since the 80s, so it was a treat to come back and kind of remember yeah.
2: i had never watched the work print before we watched it for this either. yeah work print kind of popped up it was basically what they used for test screenings in 82 yeah which is people didn't like it and that's why the producers <laughs> took it away and did all these <laughs> changes know, putting made all these on. uh but that that like and screener, that's minus a
1: that's minus a, the the voiceover as well the work yeah yeah
2: and it doesn't have like the tacked on quote-unquote happy
1: ending yeah uh, different titles at the beginning and everything but
2: somehow that That work print resurfaced in the early 90s and 19 and had screenings in Los Angeles and San Francisco in 90 and 91. And it was the audience responses to those uh, screenings of the work print, which, like I said, were what they used for test screenings 10 years earlier, that kind of got them to do the quote unquote director's cut, which was like unauthorized because it's not really Ridley Scott's director's cut. They just tried to.
1: Yeah, Ridley was doing that. 1492 movie at the time, so he was so he just tried to supervise, and they had people come in and, I guess, work off his notes, and then yeah, he's working had issues. off the work print and uh, what his original intentions were, and all that kind of. It's much like, um, almost like a touch of evil situation. With, sure. With, with, yeah. What's his face? Uh, v- uh, b- 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 Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Thank you. Uh,
2: so the, this work print resurfaced. Uh, got a couple of screenings. People were
1: loved it, but uh, that got the ball uh, rolling. Screens,
2: but then uh, people were like, "Well, maybe we should let Ridley take another hit at it." <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, but then that came out, and it really wasn't Ridley's.
1: He was kind of tr- picked True director's vision. The when the work for it came out, And that what got him to accept. Like he was like, "This is yeah. not how I ever wanted it to be seen." Yeah, yeah. And that got yeah that got the ninety one cut out, and then he was still like, "Well, this is still not what I wanted." Yeah, and then that's when they did another. Yeah, when
2: technology and DVD and Blu-ray came yeah. around, it was like, all right, well, let's do the final cut. Let's make it exactly what Ridley would want. Yeah, uh, so Ridley was heavily involved, and uh, that's the version that I was talking about that I saw. But this yeah. movie came out, which 19- is a great version. I love that's my yeah. that's my preferred version. Yeah, yeah. but also it's because it's the one that I fell in love
1: with. Yeah, you know, but saw? all the stuff he did in it, like fixing the Joanna Cassidy bit and all that, it's it's kind of he did do a Lucas to an extent, but he didn't change. Yeah. He didn't have really... like Han shoot for, or what's his face? You know, <laughs> it, it was more, you know, yeah. uh, just fixing things as opposed to like going back and, you know, uh, well, I guess he did, uh, you know, with adding the unicorn and stuff. There was, yeah, but that
2: was in the director's cut.
1: Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. Um, not in the work print though. Yeah. Uh, But so this, this movie came out in 1982, uh, June 25th, 1982. Also coming out that weekend. Oh, Six months before Christmas, this is this is an early Christmas <laughs> present for everybody. John Carpenter's The Thing came Oof. out that weekend. Yeah, uh, Megaforce and, and Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl. That's just that weekend. But that summer, we saw Star Trek: The Wrath of Two, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, Conan the Barbarian, E.T. came out two weeks before that. Firefox, Yeah, uh, Secret of Nim, Tron, Zapped with Scott Baio, uh, Night Shift particular
1: favorite of, of us here at saturday night movie sleepovers uh you said road warrior cat people fast times at ridgemont high yeah last american virgin uh, uh friday you, 13th part three you say class of 84 officer and a gentleman the Beastmaster, master it's a hell of a, a summer rocky three uh so people have said that 82 because we've said people have said 84 as yeah. the but. We when we we declared '84 was a pretty <laughs> cool because '84 you had a lot of good stuff out and then yeah. people then somebody else was and then like,
2: this year we proved that '87 was a hell of a year yeah and this '82 but '82 p- some people claim that '82 is the best year for for movies Hollywood movies anyway uh, yeah and this is I with that list I certainly would not uh, argue against it but it's interesting that two movies that are now considered all time classics yeah the thing and Blade Runner come out in the same weekend and both flop miserably.
1: And it's predicted because like a, a year or so before, all these either critics or people in the industry were like, you can't, all these movies that are in production, these mega properties cannot all come out around the same time and find audiences because they're yeah, gonna yeah. just cancel, all these pluses are gonna cancel each other out, yeah. which ends up happening. You have E.T. come out. And then you have these other ones, and people blame ET. We know for the the thing, thing. if that's true or not, or, or, or sci-fi in general. So you have so you have all these Star Trek. I mean, you think of all the major. I mean, the thing really he, bombed. I think you know,
2: Blade Runner came out, might have been number two that weekend. Yeah, but then after, that went after ET, but then like it had an okay opening weekend, but then it fell off pretty quickly. Whereas the thing just was like,
1: I mean, you have so many. You have you have like the Star Trek proper. You have a new Eastwood movie. You have a new. Uh, a rocky movie you have a new spielberg movie you have a, new, a couple new comedies i mean it's just you have so you have a new arnold movie i mean you have so many such so, so much stuff to choose from yeah, yeah and all those movies we've mentioned if you take them out of 82 they're all pretty good movies yeah, yeah. i mean they're either they're pretty good to decent to like really good movies i mean Khan is considered by some to be the best of the original by series most, i would say yeah uh i mean some people had like four you yeah. know, uh, I'd say still the majority. you and I, yeah, we like we like <laughs> two. I like six as well, but that's yeah, also we're Nicholas both fans Myers. Of six. Yeah, two and six, two and six are great. But um, you know, and Rocky three is good. You know, you have some really heavy hitting. I mean, people I, et so iconic for people, so it's like they end up kind of like destroying themselves in a way, you know, because they have yeah. to cannibalize an audience. Yeah. So Blade Runner comes out and doesn't really do as well as people predicted, at least domestically in the U.S. Here,
2: it's also the first
1: theatrical
2: adaptation of a Philip K. Dick book. Yeah. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was, came out in 1968. Yeah. Um, Now, it just, you know, here's, this is, could be sacrilege, but so we read the book for this. Yeah. And I have to admit, like, I didn't like the book. See,
1: now, this is what I've read. This is my third, third reading of the book. I read the book in 2003 or four and then uh re- we watched the movie and then i actually reread the book last year yeah and then that was the idea of like hey we should probably do blade runner and that was when we t- And then like you know then we reread the book here and i've each time i read the book i've liked it more really and this has been my favorite. i
2: really didn't care
1: for it yeah the third um, the, when i read it in 2003 it's like i almost didn't understand it kind of a thing yeah. you know it was kind of like foreign to me and it was like you know uh and then when I reread it last year I really dug it and then rereading it again now I really really yeah. love it. And I almost p- prefer the book to the movie the story wise yeah, yeah. of what's ha- happening, you know. I think it's one of these situations we should probably say off the bat. It's like a, The Shining, you know, from the book to the movie or one yeah, of those yeah. words. The book, it, they both complement each other. You can't really, you know, uh View one, it's two, two different yeah.
2: visions of like a similar story, yeah, like <laughs> a
1: property because it's just they're so uh, as as similar as they are, they're so very different, you yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, and Philip K. Dick wrote the book in '68, comes out, and he was very hesitant about uh having people uh take his stuff and put it into uh onto the big screen, but then once this came out, this kind of greenlit all these other. I mean, for people who don't know, he wrote, uh, we can remember it for you, Wholesale, which turns out to be Total Recall. He wrote Minority Report. He wrote... Um, uh, Paycheck. He wrote Paycheck. He wrote a lot of short stories. And now on Amazon, there's the man, man the, the man in the High, High Castle, Castle uh, which is he was when he was researching that in the early 60s, mm-hmm. gave him the idea of Blade Runner, I guess, or Blade Runner, do Androids dream of electric sheep because that is a... Uh, a take on what is it, an alternate future. It's if an the Nazis alternate won. future
2: of like the Nazis and the
1: Japanese. Yeah. Won. Winning the world war two. Yeah. And then what, what the world would turn out to be and in researching that book. He was doing a lot of heavy research into Nazism and, and, you know, and Hitler, reading, like Nazi
2: diaries. Yeah. He stuff. got access
1: to like a college kind of a to stuff yeah. to all these um things that are packed away at, at like college universities. And he realized the lack of empathy, uh particularly like the Nazi soldiers SS or whatever had for, you know, say the Jews and the concentration camps. Yeah, I mean that. it really made him
2: question which is really the big question of the movie and the book, uh which is like what makes us human. Yeah. And and,
1: and I mean, reading like this lack of empathy for human life. Jobs that kind of psychologically um make you unhuman or uncaring. Yeah. You know, unempathetic where you you know you have that People. So
2: in his mind reading the these nazi accounts and reading what the nazis did and how they really kind of didn't have empathy for humans like
1: he he, he brings up a point where he read a passage where like the nazi on, on chance was saying like we were kept all na- up all night by the the children screaming because they were starving and it yeah. was just like a side note in the and he that really yeah. disturbed him it's like well, what the fuck and it's and uh so then he brought that idea into doing do androids dream of electric sheep and uh, the idea of
2: that the nazis are subhuman they're yeah. not human yeah and then so like how do you you bring that into science fiction terms the and the andes the androids yeah in, in the
1: empathetic you know, in the,
2: the and in the do androids dream of electric sheep they're not human yeah
1: which we can get into um in, in a little bit the, the book itself but and then i think he also wrote which is um the movie screamers you know that he wrote the short story for that oh, yeah. um
2: I do have to is... admit, I mean, I, I read this. I'm not a huge narrative reader anymore. Um, and I haven't read a lot of Dick. I read the short stories that led to Paycheck and Minority Report a couple you know, several years ago. I've read a couple of the short stories. I never read like one of his longer novels. Um but yeah, I just didn't uh, it didn't float my boat. You know yeah. what it was? It's like and it's hard because like anything we try to do with the movies, it's like you have to kind of put them in context. You know, in nineteen sixty eight this is gonna read Uh, for people much differently than it's going to read for me in 2017 you know but you know to be honest and it's not uh that's so much a negative for him but i would say like a positive for us which is like you know i read it and it was like the stuff i've read of yours is like just as good (laughs) you know like written like you you know what i mean it was like as you read it it's like the language and everything it's like it it i don't know it's not um to me, it just didn't read as exceptional. Like yeah. it didn't ex- read as exceptionally well written, not poorly written, but not like exceptionally well written. Uh, I didn't love a lot of the stuff that got cut out uh, of it from from the movie, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about some some of those things and more specific things. And I and I understand this is probably sacrilege, and and I'm, you know and I'm certainly not shitting on it. Like I enjoyed it, just you know for what it was, but. Not not a huge fan, I have yeah. to admit. Well, I think it's, <laughs> but I feel like I have to
1: be honest that we're course. going to talk about it. I think it's, it's uh, at the time, too, it's kind of paving the new ground and going a certain way. And it wasn't yeah. very popular when it came out either. I mean, it, it came out in 68, and then it kind of, I think, went out of print, and it only came back into print in 82, when the, mo- when the movie finally came out, they asked him to do the novelization. He's like, Are you fucking kidding me. I have yeah, a yeah. book I already did. <laughs> Why the hell do you want me to do the novelization? You know, he's like, cause, he's like, because we have to market it to like 20-year-olds. He's like, have them read my book. So that got them yeah, yeah. a little hard. Ho- but so they, they just took the p- movie poster for Blade Runner and put it on that. And then, you know, and I think that might be the addition of the book I have. Um, it is interesting, I mean, on a side note to, to, to mention that the original book takes place in San Francisco. comes out in '68, and, th- and that's the same year Bullet comes out. And there are some similarities I've heard over the years of Frank Bullet, uh, Steve McQueen's character mm-hmm. in Bullet, to what you see on the screen with Harrison Ford to well, a certain even extent. Even Harrison
2: Ford is—I don't know—in some ways you could even see that he's channeling McQueen. Certainly the look.
1: That's, well, yeah. Well, it's very McQueen-esque yeah. compared to Indiana
2: Jones or Han Solo. And you know. mean if you
1: look at his haircut? He—he he, Harrison Ford talks about like right after Indiana Jones. He he. He quickly didn't want to, the next movie he wanted to do was he wanted to do a little more serious. He was cool with doing a sci-fi movie because he had done, movies that he did star wars which was very sci-fi and he by the time he had done empire strikes back also yeah and he did indiana jones and that was like in a fantasy fantasy escape property adventure so he was looking to do something more serious but he was completely open to doing something in one of those realms of sci-fi or adventure
2: yeah i think uh just to interrupt you for one second i think that's another thing you gotta put in perspective not only is this the first time we're seeing a uh, philip k dick adaptation but he also got to put in context like i mean by that point harrison ford was a big star because he had been in and Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark the year before that. But those are really, like, the only things people knew him from. I mean, he's got a very tiny part in Apocalypse Now. Very
1: tiny the conversation. In,
2: in the conversation. He's got, like, uh, the, American graffiti yeah. a little bit. But, like, he really hadn't been. Yeah,
1: Force 10 and Averone didn't really uh, do as well. Fowler's I mean, War. certainly
2: Star Wars and Indiana Jones would made him, a movie like, a movie yeah. star.
1: But And the, he was coming right off the heels of those. Yeah. I mean, those were huge. So it was, like... He was jumping into this property. So he was like, I just wore a hat the entire movie. Uh, I don't want to wear a hat. And he got his hair cut. And his haircut was very different from the time of people wearing like, you know, you had punk rockers, you had yeah, yeah. people doing various things with their hair. Hair was long, people had uh, mullets. Yeah, yeah. So I find it now you look at his haircut, it's very modern for our age. Like I wear that haircut he has to <laughs> yeah, a certain yeah. extent. So it's very, I don't think it was for thinking of him, but it, I think it it almost comes to be timeless. So rounding about to the McQueen thing, you know, um, for people who may not know, they wrote that Willie, uh, Whitney Houston movie, The Bodyguard, for McQueen, but he didn't want to do it, so that sat on the shelf for I don't know, ten or fifteen years, and then when it got made, that's why Kevin Costner has the look with the short hair and the thing. So there are a couple things in the in the the movie Blade Runner that have a lot of weird references to, that, that I've, I I couldn't find when I was researching this now, but I'd read over the years about yeah. like you know uh how he carries himself uh his the the visual style how he looks even the cardigan at the end the kind of gun the po he strikes a pose in it that's that's right out of bullet you know so yeah, yeah. it was really interesting to see that and then the dichotomy of the original book coming out in 68 takes place in san francisco the movie bullet takes place in san francisco and they're both cops and you know and they're put on an assignment they don't really want to do you know yeah, yeah. so but anyway
2: so this but it takes place in san francisco 1992
1: 1992 yes <laughs> Uh, then in subsequent <laughs> the future of nineteen ninety two, and also this is for uh, for the greater extent for moviegoers uh, when this movie comes out, this is one of the first examples probably of what the dystopian future. Yeah, because people were still thinking of like Logan's Run. Well, but, you yeah, know, you have that. No.
2: W- well, that's the thing. I was thinking, but, but I, I mean, in a I, sense I of thinking, the clean.
1: Yeah, you know, I was it's dirty. To,
2: I was trying to think of that because. The the dystopian thing, post apocalyptic dystopian thing. We kind of
1: you have like Battleship Galactica, which is like you know Battle Star Galactica. I'm sorry, Battleship. That's our own. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, but
2: uh, you had Soil and Green, yeah, which is very similar to this. And yeah. that it is like poor people on the bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rich people live in like the high rises. They get all, they get the good food. Yeah,
1: and they're eating. And the people on the. Soiling yellow, (laughs) soiling blue. uh,
2: But they have like apples and shit up on the the thing. So that, you know. Omega
1: Man, which is Richard uh, Matheson's. You know, you have those. kind of
2: around because I was trying to think, like, what was it about the late 70s and early 80s that gave us Mad Max, uh, Escape from New York, Blade Runner? But then when you think about it, like, that kind of view of the future. Had been around. I mean, Metropolis. Yeah. And then in the 70s, like the 70s, Soylent Green and stuff. But also Soylent Green is based on a book that probably was written around the same time. This was written. That this, you know, that if not.
1: uh, Well, I think what they do in Blade Runner is they emphasize the technology where you have a post-apocalyptic. I don't remember uh, for Soylent Green if it's post-apocalyptic. I don't think it is. I could be wrong, of course, yeah. but I remember them being, you know, in cities and stuff, and you know them. But the po- but this the movie isn't really post. That's what I mean. The it book, is. the book is yeah. The book is very it's post-nuclear much so nuclear war, and that's why we're living in, we're living in like nuclear fallout. Yeah, that's why the world's so. Where they up. yeah they drop that in in this in the movie version, and they make it more on technology taking over pollution. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the eradication of basically animals on Earth and. You know, even just trees and stuff like that, which is not really touched upon in the movie. You know, which is really a heavy-handed part of the book. Yeah, it's a big part of the
2: book. Yeah, that we're living in like this nuclear fallout, and most animals are extinct. So, that you get glimpses of it of like, oh, if you think I could afford, you know, like if I could afford a like a right like a real snake, you think I'd be doing this in the job? movie? Yeah, you know, they, the they movie. say that,
1: or is that all real? But that's really they all touch, and I wish for. Because sort of the, animals are a big
2: thing in the book. Yeah, he he owns an electric sheep. The idea of owning a real animal is like a huge status symbol, and you're almost looked up down upon if you own like a synthetic or or a, a robot. Animal, yeah, you know.
1: So that's a
2: big part of the book that we only get tastes of in the movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess to to briefly summarize the book to well i figure we should probably just if we're going to talk about the book maybe talk about it in well, as we go on with the movie how it's, compare as opposed to laying yeah, out yeah. the whole book yeah i don't book.
2: know yeah i don't, you know, I, don't, don't think that, I don't think getting the... too deep into the book is 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 i don't think people are gonna yeah wanted... enjoy that discussion if you haven't read the book yeah uh so yeah i think in kind of chipping away at it in comparison is the best way it's to... probably the most uh, listener friendly
1: yeah, in the book, he's got he. Th- there's a there's a war called World War Terminus, which is WWT, and that has this fallout. You're saying that there's this, you know, that and people are living in this 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 kind of post apocalyptic world. We get Rick Deckard. They're still living in cities and everything like that, but just people. Have, that's why people are migrating off to off world colonies to get away from the fallout and the, mm-hmm. the dust, as they call it, you know, or the um, the kibble, which is just this stuff everywhere that just kind of just like the the crap that people, yeah, yeah. you know, the the waste that just ends up uh, um, multiplying almost on its sure, own. Sure. And uh, Rick Deckard has a wife in the book. Her name's Iran. Yeah.
2: What I will say about the the nuclear fall, like the the, the the like the worlds that the book and the movie occupy. Yeah, like we're uh, we're in a post-apocalyptic future, post-nuclear uh, war future in the book. The movie is more hitting like capitalism it's <laughs> kind of what yeah. made the world the way it is industrialization you can see the pollution i mean as we open the movie if we open this the city we see like these firing like stacks you know it's clearly like pollution and these were all things you were saying acid rain was a big thing in the 80s this fear of acid rain you know like don't use aerosol cans because it's putting a hole in the ozone. Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, there was this—it's per- perpetual night in the movie. You the, never the see The late
2: daytime. '70s and early '80s into the mid '80s, this is a time when we start thinking about like, we got to start recycling
1: shit. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, a bi- like, what are we going to do with all this? Garbage? Yeah, there was a big push in the late '70s. People thought of it—it uh, w- it wasn't global warming; it was the reverse that people thought that we were going to have another ice age. So yeah. there, there, there was covers on Time Magazine of like, you know, the next ice age where people yeah, we yeah. thought we were going to restart at, you know—an ice age. So there was suddenly after the 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 post industrial you know uh, idea of of us going into the, the middle of the twentieth century people are like shit you know all this stuff we have to start trying to conserve or do something
2: if anything I think the brilliance of the movie um, and the writers uh, what are their names Hampton no. Fancher and David Peoples who wrote the script and then Ridley Scott is like actually like kind of correctly forecasting the future yeah how it's happening you know certainly not as fast because the, mo- the movie takes place not in san francisco but in los angeles and not in 1992 but if but in 2019 yeah which is two years away <laughs> but uh you kind of do start seeing uh things kind of going that way but the idea of uh that t- the tyrell people they all live in this like these Monuments,
1: yeah, so above like,
2: the rest of the city, and the idea of what you're talking about, where it's like it's dirty and it's used, but yet technol there's these technological things. That's kind of the start of the cyberpunk movement, which yeah. you talked about uh, the the book that you like a lot. No, Neuromancer comes uh, out the, the year after whole, this, yeah, uh, a lot, and how that kind of coined the phrase uh, cyberspace, uh, and I think that's like the that those are two two very different things and the idea of the book you see this idea of I mean in the movie you see this idea of like overpopulation but at least as a reader I didn't get the sense that there was like it was like lack of
1: population yeah because people have either died or, or they've immigrated so, so p- some people who what what ends up happening is you have to get tested uh, monthly by the government, and you could be deemed as special if you 're deemed as special or a chicken head you 've had so much fallout you can't you 're not able to uh, reproduce and you 're kind of forced to live on earth you can 't immigrate yeah and leave you 're not allowed to leave so uh, a lot of the people so you have entire and that 's what you get a little bit with um what's his face's character in the movie the, the the toy maker Sebastian Sebastian is that you know you have into- people living in these huge buildings alone you're living yeah. in skyscrapers that everyone has left you found an apartment and you just live there and you could be the only one in the apartment or in, in the it, apartment it, building yeah you could in, be the only person living in, in the, the, the it, or in the neighborhood and people live more near the city centers and um deckard has a wife in the movie in the book and um it, it, a very interesting thing that they don't put in the movie is that they have this thing called the mood Penfill machine where you get up in the morning and it's very funny because like you're talking about forecasting what's happening now it's very much what you're seeing, where you know you, these. You get up in the morning, and all automatically they'll they'll set a, a mood they want to have. Yeah. So like you could type in what you. You can dial. Feel. So you can dial like C or D settings to be happy. You can dial eight 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 to desire to watch TV. Uh, his wife ends up dialing twice a month a feeling of despair and just uh, loneliness because she wants to be able to feel that. Because she, so what you have in this is that people. Have such a sadness or, or just a you know th- they're taking drugs or what pills to make them feel different, so even deckard wakes up in the morning he 'll dial something he, he had to get ready to go to work yeah, you yeah. know so people are relying so much on it where it's it 's not even a drug it 's almost like it's an implant and it's like a yeah
2: it's an it kind ins- of triggers the chemical reaction in your brain to, to, much, i mean much like pills well, do. yeah, what
1: we do nowadays and yeah, yeah. and the other big thing in the book which I find fascinating is there's this thing called the um Empathy box, And there's this thing called mercerism, which is completely taken out of the movie. And it's now, once you had the World War, world War Terminus, the first thing you start re- losing is the owls drop dead yeah. in, the, in, in, in the book's world. And then the other flying things. And then because of the fallout, basically all animals on Earth uh, ended up becoming extinct for the most part.
2: Or very close to extinction. That's yeah. why they're so rare and considered like a status symbol for the rich.
1: Yeah. So what you have now is there's is a complete turnaround in the popular uh, psyche where animals are so revered that it's a crime if you don't try to maintain them. And even to the point where it's not even like people don't want to not maintain them. They're... They, they all... The, the entire world population believes that. Yeah. Like, oh my God, look what we've done. You know, we have to try to take care of animals. You know, it's a huge part of your life and this religion almost, this mercerism, and this guy Wilbur Mercer has come to, uh, came to be, and he represents that. And, and what it ends up happening is you have this thing called an empathy box, and in the morning what you can do is you can fuse with your empathy box, and what it basically is, it looks like two paddles you have for like, the, like a um, PlayStation. And you can hold on to that, and then you can kind of go on almost like an internet, and you can be with all these other people in the world who are doing the same thing you're doing at the same time, and you can feel... It's almost basically like what we do now, going on Facebook. Yeah, you know, it's what our cell phone has become. Where these these empathy boxes, you, you touch them in the morning, and you, you it's almost like you're you're saying your prayer and you're fusing with mercer and mercer is this old man going up a hill and he's forever going up a hill it's the struggle to get to this top it's a rocky hill there's rocks coming down whacking you and you feel the pain you may get a scratch or a cut from in the, the rock life. in real life when you take it off but you can feel everybody else there and you can feel the collectiveness of the world there mm. you can feel all the people's happiness or loneliness if you feel good you can help somebody else feel good so people that's a reason why people want to yeah um uh, merge like
2: pseudo religious Thing and he's a religious Mercer is a religious figure in the that book. Everybody does. Well, it's interesting because the idea of the book of the androids. I mean, they're not called replicants in the book; they're called androids or yeah, Andes Andy. Andy, sure. yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about how you know Philip K. Dick kind of got the idea because of the Nazis. They were missing this fundamental thing that made you human, you know. And 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 he's kind of manifested this as empathy in the book. And so uh, it's an interesting thing
1: because you have. It's very different from the book because, I mean, from the movie, because in the book, you, you start to see that some of these, uh, the andro- you, you get the feeling that in the movie, the androids have the feelings kind of yeah, for yeah. each other, or in the book, they don't. Yeah, yeah. the the you know, the androids don't well, really yeah, care. The
2: book's a different. I mean, the movie's a very different beast than the book. Yeah, but in the book, I, you know, I find it interesting because you're explaining like the mood organ, which yeah. is what they call that the first machine, the kind of a slang that the which is basically about.
1: like it, like you said, it's basically people, a lot of people taking antidepressants, yeah. and stuff. But it's also interesting because
2: on the one side they have the the the, mer, the mercer mercerism the mercerism thing going on that machine, but then. The question of like what makes us human, yeah, is the is the overall big question between the book and the movie, and it's just interesting because if you talking about the the mood organ and you can dictate how you want to feel, in a way, it's like you're you're programming yourself. You're taking away your humanity.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you're and, you and think. then you're trying to re gain that humanity back by doing the Mercer machine. Yeah, you have this issue where there's this huge amount of loneliness because of, you're living in these empty cities or whatever, like you said, you could yeah. be living in an apartment it's not building like by yourself.
2: The world in the book is, like I said, in the, in the movie, you get this sense of like overpopulation. That's yeah. why they're going to Mars or whatever. They're leaving and going. Out. In the movie, it's like... It's, in the book... I mean <laughs> yeah in the in the, in the book
1: because of the the war that happened and because of the nuclear fallout yeah. people have left to the colonization to get away and have a better life so there aren't a lot of people in the
2: book yeah. is what we're saying like the the city is not in overrun. city centers
1: there are but not yeah once you leave there's stuff that hasn't even been touched like you know buildings falling apart decay yeah, yeah. and uh the other big thing in the book is there's this guy called Buster Friendly and his friendly friends and it's yeah. just basically 24-hour TV show that really you can only get. It's like the only channel you can get, and all. And and he's also the per. I don't know what you. It's almost like the Jerry Lewis like telethon, where it's like you're just watching him. And for some reason, people just think that he's a regular guy, and they're like, "Whoa, I don't know how Buster Friendly's able to broadcast 23 hours a day, and he's had these all his guests come on. You know, how do they stay good looking and all? You know, and it's and it and he informs you of what's going on. So you, it's very and it's not even almost like government run. You know, you don't really get a sense of an overarching government yeah. hand on it. It's just you have the mood organ to, like, make you feel something, then, like, just despair. But then people are able to dial up like Deckard's wife. She's, she's a de- almost bipolar depressant, sadly. She's yeah. dialing depression for herself. He wakes up in the morning in the book, and he's like, why don't we both dial something happy and we'll leave, and then you know, she doesn't want to. He's like, I'll dial for you. And she's like, If you dial for me, I'll dial something. You know? So yeah. it's almost, it's very, I found that real, very realistic that argument of like, you know, when you're married in a relationship for a while, you have those kind of issues with, you know, you've seen the same person every damn day. And it's like, yeah. you know, and then them, the, the only thing they have outside of their job is, as you're saying, is either um, the empathy box and the Mercerism and being able to like feel that there's a presence of someone else out there which I said I can I kind of really equate to like Facebook now yeah you know and then also this Buster Friendly who's just broadcasting which is
2: to me read much like a like a sensational like almost like a Morton Downey
1: Jr. yeah yeah that kind of uh, yeah he's very like a yeah over the top kind of like a not like a Howard Stern but like a one of these crazy like Richard Dawson like running man like very like (laughs) you know like he's not killing people in it, but it's very it's the only thing you watch you trust him because he says stuff and you get your information and news from him, you know, so the book progresses that like uh, it seems like as, as, as well as the book and the movie that the Blade Runner or the bounty hunter, the Deckard character, the general population really doesn't know that there are this subtype of policemen out there. And which I don't understand. Well, It'll, he's not really even a policeman in the book. He's he's a blade. He's runner, a bounty. He's hunter. a bounty hunter that is sanctioned. The Blade, he works for blade
2: the... Runner actually is a term for, that came in uh, for the movie. Uh, they originally they couldn't call the movie uh, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" It was too long. It's a great title, but you know, not for like a Hollywood movie. So they talked about maybe calling it Android or Android dangerous days, dangerous days is where the name of that documentary comes from. And then uh, Hampton Fancher who had started writing like the first versions of the movie, they're trying to think of something and really Scott didn't want to just call Harrison Ford. A bounty hunter or whatever he's he ends up being a part of the police department in the book in the i mean in the movie in the book he's just like a bounty hunter that works for the police so i think it was fancher that was like you know there's this other book that by burroughs called blade runner
1: yeah burroughs had written there is a book by um another gentleman that wrote that's called The Blade Runner and that is about people who steal yeah that
2: was Alan E. Norse wrote a book called The Blade Runner yeah
1: and, and that book is about people who are the black market of stealing surgical equipment yeah. which sounds like a pretty cool idea
2: yeah yeah and, and, then, and, and it involves like a virus yeah something.
1: and then Burroughs wrote a screenplay adaptation that I think never got done they were yeah the Burroughs was hired to kind of write like William,
2: a, the, the William S. Burroughs yeah people the William, William yeah. S. Burroughs wrote basically what was gonna a, a treatment or even the beginnings of a script that was going to maybe be a film adaptation of Alan E. Norse's book, The Blade Runner. So uh, eventually, th- because William S. Burroughs sells books, <laughs> you know, yeah. like they, he can sell a book, they decided to release like that treatment uh, slash like, screenplay uh, uh, as a William S. Burroughs book called Blade Runner, a movie. And so that term Blade Runner kind of stuck with Hampton Fancher. And he's like, you know, there's this other thing uh, that I know from Burroughs called Blade Runner. What do you think of that? And Ridley Scott liked it, so Ridley Scott went and like bought the title.
1: <laughs> yeah, <he's, laughs> he optioned the, t- the title, and then also. Uh, but the but but the
2: the Norse book seems much more uh, sci like a more of a science fiction type story that's talking a lot about uh, the plight of healthcare, which is seems very relevant yeah. especially these days and even, about like how some people can have it and some people don't and you have to have certain precondi- preconditions I haven't read it but reading up on it
1: it seems sounds very, totally yeah, relevant yeah. for, for <laughs> thinking the, for the time A lot as a lot of these sci-fis are even Ridley Scott wanted to call this at one point Gotham City but then he couldn't get the rights from Bob Kane because of it, it Batman so you know they went with Blade Runner and I don't know if it was Peoples or what's his face the first Fancher. guy Fancher's niece one of their nieces was studying what is it bioengineering, and she came up with the idea of the name replicant. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah because yeah, yeah. of the idea of in you know science cells replicating and stuff like that. So they came up with the, she came up with the idea for the screenwriter like oh you can turn and then he said oh he, I think he put it together one of the two guys will call them replicants because in the book they're called as you said androids or and, they call them sp- specifically Andes, as in the movie it's replicant or skin jobs, and in the in in they they never make the distinction in the book of why in the movie they settle a question very early on, which I, I'm very happy about in the in there's why the two questions. Why can't they be on Earth? And what has happened to, to them not to want them have, on, have them on Earth. So in the movie they quickly say that there was an uprising at some point, and now any escaped androids will have to be killed. Retired. Retired, and, retired and uh, we have these things called Blade Runners going after them. And they also give away the four-year... They, they explain away the four-year life in the movie because that they say, I guess, scientists or genetic engineers realized after around the four-year mark, these replicants start developing emotions.
2: Yeah, there's... Well, let, so, I'll let you finish where you're going, <clears throat> but that's a whole thing that I want to talk yeah, about. This.
1: So the fear of... I guess the speculation or the conjecture is that if they develop emotions, they could freak out, they could whatever, and then it could lead to like some sort of bloodbath. And that's the reasoning in the movie behind the four-year lifespan and the reason why they don't want these escaped androids coming to Earth, the replicants, because uh, of whatever. In the book... They say they only can live four years because that's as far along as the cells of science has been able to figure it out after the four year mark they start deteriorating. they can't figure it out yet, and they're trying to yeah. and then they never really for me, unless I've missed it, they don't really say specifically why they never quote an uprising or whatever you know they do for the specific instant of these this group coming. Off-World Colony in, in the book. In the book, yeah. You know, but they never say that there was a precedent that happened, you know, and yeah, yeah. that now there is a fear and that because of that fear, they've had to develop these bounty hunters. We do know in the book that there was this incident that happened where these yeah. f- eight or how many, there's more in, in the book, they break away, they come down and now they've assimilated, you know, they, some of them even have false memories and that is the reason, you know, they don't want them here living among us, but they don't really, it's not really delineated, specifically as it is clearly because i think these are questions that the movie had to hey you know in in script meetings like we have to figure out why what's the why do we even have this uh this conflict with these things why can't they come down here you know what i mean sure so it become you know okay
2: so yeah there's some things i want to talk about because i find this the this stuff the most interesting for me in the book i mean in the movie we're gonna get confused back and forth. We're, you know, looking, we're, we're, just we're gonna here. say apologize all wrong to until, we, until we, we go back and listening, we realize for an hour
1: we've been saying it, made it backwards. No sense. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but uh, so in the book, do androids dream of electric sheep? Yes. You know, his big Dick's big intention, Philip K. Dick's big intention, like we said, was these people, are, uh, these androids, are missing a very fundamental piece of humanity. Um, they don't. They're missing something that really is what makes them human, and that's the Uh, difference—the empathy, the the empathy Um, thing—and but in both cases, they're really the only reason why these androids or replicants exist is because uh, basically for like manual labor. On Mars to build like <laughs> off where...
1: Col- yeah, they're building off uh, the American colony states on Mars. So, so basically, so that's they're why they're the, not here. Yeah, they're made for that. They're made to allure people off. You, 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 you get one if you. They're, they're. It, it almost to me too sounds like a complete other story that isn't told. Yeah. Almost like a Soylent Green esque kind of a thing. Like, what is actually going on up there that yeah, we don't know yeah. about? Well, also, because you know, I mean, I
2: don't. I you. I think you read the. Total recall book. Yeah, we can remember it for you I, wholesale. I didn't that. read it. I just know the movie, but it's like, that's all on Mars. To
1: me, it's like, that's what's going on on Mars. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, but it's very much, you know, it's it's
2: Arnold. Of the
1: yeah, it's all that said. fucked up shit. But you don't realize, like, what has really happened. They're, they're trying to get people to leave. And get I can't, to Mars. yeah, I can't see them wanting because they're worried about your well being. But they're trying to get people off, so they're incentivizing them by saying, if you go up there, you're going to get yourself your own for free of charge. You'll get your own Android, yeah. which will be your servant. And then, like you're saying, which they talk about in the movie, is to develop in these harsh environments, the mining, uh, colonization, colonialism. They have these these androids being developed to go do the dirty work. That basically, you know. Three hundred years ago, we had slaves doing, yeah, yeah. and this the book is also a comment on you know our, the past of 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 and the, colonization yeah. and slavery and the movie to a certain extent. Yes, and yeah, because you're right because that's what they even make mention to it. I think specifically. Yeah, yeah. So in the in the in the book, that is one of the reasons why, uh, in the sense of to get off the world and and to have people up there. So,
2: but so my point is you know, kind of the motivations of the replicants slash androids are kind of different from book to movie, you know, very clearly in blade runner one. Yes. They think of themselves as slaves, but you know, there's all this talk of, you know, it's, it's whatever you know, it's horrible, live in fear. That's what it's like to be a slave, yada, yada, yada. But also there's a very clear intent, a very clear uh, motivation by Rudger Hauer, Roy Batty in the movie, which is we're only going to live for four years we want to extend our lifespan. Yeah. We it's want not to,
1: fair. We're yeah.
2: Whereas in the mo- in the book, they want to just escape and live. They want to, They just want to live. They I just mean, want, they to, want. They don't want to be slaves anymore. Yeah, they
1: just want to have some sort of life to the point where uh You have one character, uh, Luma Loft. I think her name is and she comes down and she poses as an opera singer. Yeah. And she has this beautiful voice and she's amazing and you know she, and they just want to and even and they want to
2: blend in and live out that rest of their four year life. Yeah, and they don't, they're not human.
1: they're not cr- uh, committing crimes. And that's kind of the that's where the double standard the hypocrisy of in within the book of the characters is that it becomes a crime in this post uh, nuclear war world not to care for animals and people embrace that. So they do they go bend over backwards for animals. Where, in my personal opinion, I think people should, but the hypocrisy comes in where you have these other things that are basically as well like a Frankenstein kind of, well, you that's know, exactly. And it, yeah. it's and they kind of want the same thing, and it becomes the distinction of why do you care so much about this, but you don't care about that, you know? And it becomes very, uh, it's a very tough question that the bounty hunter Rick Deckard in the book starts to realize very quickly, and it becomes one of these. Stories much like an Apocalypse Now or a character where you go out on the last job and what ends up happening is, you know, do you end up becoming what you're hunting? You see that in a lot of Westerns, you know, sure. in going after these killers, you become a killer or you become what you hate because you go to that level. Yeah. Well, you know, it's
2: interesting because as a bounty hunter, Deckard in the book, uh, he is them. I mean, he, he does not have empathy for them.
1: No, nobody does. It wasn't, but he develops it. Yes, he starts through the that's his journey yeah. as
2: a, as like the main character of. The, he becomes uh, so
1: conflicted. Like, what am I doing? These some of these, especially when he has to retire that Luma Loft character, the opera singer. Yeah. He, he's like, this is such a talent because he he in the book he's he collects old tapes, unquote quote unquote of like old opera singers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he, he has an affinity for opera music. Say so he's able to talk to her to try to get her to take the test and pose and that we see that with Harrison Ford a little bit when he's trying to get Joanna Cassidy because yeah. she's the representation of that character in the movie the snake woman he is like why am I even killing this char- this thing because this could bring so much to humanity you know the arts and all that kind of thing yeah, yeah. And, and the character has such an appreciation for the arts they they, they have to conf- uh they have to go um, g- they, they go confl- confront her in a museum and she's looking at paintings and she's asking these philosophical questions so it becomes very it's a that's his journey is he yeah. he
2: just starts to develop empathy for them you know in the book uh there's this character called named Isidore yeah and he's really like the co- main character. He's the, the he's like, the B-plot. Ha- yeah, there's like, but he's got a really huge part, yeah. you know, in the book. And, and that's what I, this and is. And he's been kind of chopped down to be J.F. Sebastian.
1: In the movie. In the movie, and that's what which I, is a very
2: small part. But significant, but small.
1: And that's what I don't, this is where I have some kind of problems personally with the movie, that there's so much that's undeveloped there, where he, the B-plot of the book is that this, there's this chicken head who has, he's a special, he has the fallout, he's been deemed he can never immigrate Uh, or migrate off world. So he's stuck here. He's living by himself in an apartment building, only one in the apartment building. He works for this uh, Van Ness Pet Hospital. And it's one of these places that fix and fix, maintain robotic animals. And he drives the truck to pick things up like that. And it's one of these situations where the character thinks he's stupid. He's told he's stupid, but I can't think of an example offhand, but it's one of these things where he's actually very intelligent. Yeah. But he doesn't realize it because he's been told and he thinks himself by Buster Friendly and everybody else, the government, that you're stupid, you can't can't reproduce, you can't whatever. Well, the thing that... Because he has some of the most profound kind of thoughts in the book.
2: But it's also that's... I mean, that's... I don't know. That's that's literature. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. You, I'm, I'm sure
1: you can think of scores of characters that you find that with. Yeah, you yeah. know, you find like the the, the the quote unquote dummy or the yeah, or the child. Yeah, or the you know. You know the, 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 our, we used to
2: have a writing teacher that always talked about like the homeless guy. Yes. is always the one that has the most profound things
1: to say in the script. Yeah, and this and you have that with this guy in he uh, at very at the very beginning, which is such a touching thing for me in the book. Is they he picks up a cat. And the owner gives him the cat and he's like, you know, it's not working. It, it, it started acting up at night. Can you have it fixed and, and leaves for work? And he's bringing it back in the truck and it's making all these kind of noises. And then it stops and he pulls the truck over to try to fix it. He tries to find the, the circuit board to open it up and reset it. And he's like, I can't find it. Brings it to the to the home base of the pet hospital. And the head pet guy there, the surgeon, realizes it's a real cat and they're like, oh my God. And it's, and you get the fact like, that they're so taken aback yeah, yeah. and it's so horrifying. And you know, it's such a, you know, you get the, you get the, the heaviness of a real life sure. dying, you well, know?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's what's interesting. And in that's the,
1: part, that's the first part of the book of his character. arc. Yeah. What's interesting for me is
2: in the book, it's really like Isidore and Deckard are foils. I mean, they're very much played that way in terms of, like, they're almost splitting the narrative. But it's, like, Isidore is the embodiment of empathy in this world. Yeah. Whereas Deckard is... Forced to not be. Yeah, he doesn't have his job it to a certain extent. I mean, he's got, obviously, he has his... his issues with his wife and that makes him very human but at the he's same time he's also burnt
1: out like we talk about in the movie he stopped you know they got to call him back for that one last job because yeah, of yeah. what's happened his william uh, well, i'm gonna say william holden but his Holden, his partner is just like in the in the movie his his the other bounty hunters um nearly killed because you know of what happened we see in the first scene in the movie so he has to take over yeah, yeah. and then he has to try to like retire like six androids in two days. And he's like, I, "How? no one's ever done that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And but he's they're forced stuff. Kind of, to... In the book,
2: it's like they're, it's their, like those are the two characters that are kind of linked. They're, like I said, they're foils. Isidore's is all empathy. Uh, Deckard has to be, learn to be apathetic throughout this thing. Whereas in the movie, it's really Rutger, it's Blatty, it's Batty and Deckard. Harrison Ford, yeah. Um, that are really the ones that are, uh they're more like opposites almost and sort instead of
1: yeah sebastian is used more of a device in the book to get to,
2: to yeah. propel
1: the story to be able to link them to be able to get to the tyrell corporation where in the book he's a source for a lot of the plot yeah, like you're yeah. saying uh
2: but it's like because Batty is he's a big part of the he's a, he's a significant part of the book, but not in relation to Decker.
1: Yeah, but he's not even as big as I I enjoy in the movie the expert the yeah. expansion of the character and the fleshing out of yeah, Roger yeah. Hauer as Batty. Where in the book it's more of a um a group or an ensemble sure. of the androids, and you learn about other ones.
2: But this is where you know it's the this in both aspects, but most more specifically in the in the in the movie and it's kind of something you touched on is what like watching it now several times you know watching it a few times now for this watching it over the years the thing that i've really come to really like about the book is it is this like frankenstein tale it's book or the movie both okay really i mean uh in the in the book they stay kind of unempathetic unempathic
1: yeah he even talks about when he's giving them the test He's seen it before, where when they realize they've been caught, the Andes, the androids, they kind of turn off yeah. and they start, and you know, and it's it's and it's a reaction they get when they realize they're cornered. It
2: doesn't really in the book. It's like they, there is that question of like, what's humanity? What are, what does it mean to be human? And we've created these beings. Uh, it, is it right to just make them slaves and not give them their own life? Whereas in the movie. You know, you're talking about how there's the four year lifespan is given them because they might uh, have emotion, And after that four years, you don't know what that motion is going to lead to. It could lead to them going crazy or whatever. To me, it's like my interpretation of the movie is and we get it with Rudger Hauer's character because we find out by the end of the movie that he's very close to the end of his lifespan like, he dies, like, in the end of the
1: movie. Yeah, we, 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 we don't realize that until when um, we watch the first scene you see Roger Howard is he's he's having the issues with his hand so is shutting down. Uh, to me, it's not so much
2: they're worried about are they going to go crazy, are they going to kill people if they live past four years. To more, it's like, we don't want them to live past four, more than four years, because past more than four years, they become human. Yeah, and we don't like, know what would to they, do. They, like, then it's like we can't do anything with them because it's like they're, now they're now really human. But do you think we, the fear but is? But we find that Rudger Hauer is human by the end of the movie.
1: Do you think the fear is uh, that they'll the the hypocritical fear is that they they think they're going to freak out and revolt, or that the, you're saying that they're going to become human and. In the context of the movie that they're yeah, gonna... I
2: think it could be. I mean, clearly they're stronger. You know, that's the big difference between Philip K. Dick and and Ridley Scott, which is Philip K. Dick's view of the androids is that they are less than human, and, and uh, you know they they're missing that thing that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have rights, but because because he's viewing them like he said like not like he like the Nazis. Uh, but in the <laughs> Ridger, uh, Ridley Scott's view is that they're superhuman. Like yeah. they're superman
1: they can do they're in, they're superior to humans because they have to do this stuff and off world stuff
2: um but so it, i think there is that fear that you know you could have like that terminator fear that like once they become once they have emotion they realize what the fuck's going on they, they can... Real, they can they realize that they can very easily take
1: over and become yeah uh, skynet and stuff yeah i
2: could see that to me it was much more of like an emotional uh like uh philosophical uh moral issue which is like once they become human like can we make can we keep them slaves you know like yeah and I'm sure certainly reading that into it but you do see I mean the most human character in the movie is Rodger Hauer by the end and, and and though he does horrible things and uh, you know he kills people in the movie and we're led to believe that he killed people to get to earth uh. His motivations are one that we can all empathize with, which is like he just wants to live, yeah,
1: he's doing it you to, know? To, to, what
2: would we all if we all knew that we had an expiration date and we thought there was any possibility that we could extend it like what would we all be we capable would try to of, do that capable of you know it was the frank this Frankensteinian aspect of like uh which unfortunately is not really clear in many of the film adaptations of the of of Mary Shelley's book but more so in the book itself uh which is we've we've we wondered so much could we do it we never just thought stop to think about whether we should we yeah. created this life uh and we're now mistreating it. You know, like we're not taking the responsibility. We've created life, but yet we're not taking the responsibility of treating it human. Now that's the... In the, you know, if we look back and and like we've established they're kind of slaves in both the the book and in the movie. But if we look back just a couple hundred years ago, this idea of, say, a land, like a slave owner, uh, this white guy who owns these black slaves, you know, selling a child to another slave owner taking a child away from a mother and giving it with the, you know, like, and, and literally thinking to themselves justification of like, they don't feel the way we
1: do. Yeah. You know baking they, they weren't even they yeah with, with the voting right they didn't even have they weren't even yeah human. like they're, like you know, they their you know, property yeah to be but, sold you and, know
2: these africans that we've brought over here to the to the quote-unquote new world or whatever yeah. it's property they're not human they don't feel the way they do they're different we can treat them this way uh that's what's going that's that's the big question of like the replicants like we've created them but like they don't feel like we do if we let them live long enough they would but we're not but we find we don't want out we do not to get to that dilemma but the beauty of the movie is that uh they do and and Sean Young feels you know Sean Young has this whole other dilemma that she doesn't even realize it now
1: There's, uh oh, I'm sorry
2: I was just going to say, and the other aspect of it is, because they're four years old, uh, and part of the empathy thing that's going on in the book, which is that the the androids never really uh, acquire empathy, and this idea of, of the replicants not having
1: empathy, I feel like... I mean, they're children. Yeah, that's that's what I think the a, gr- a great thing about the th- movie explorers. There's
2: this very horrific thing that I've seen in New York City, and I've almost witnessed it. I've vis- witnessed it with Dion too. Uh, in that, if you see specifically little boys, but if you see little boys in New York City, see pigeons. Oh, I don't want to talk about this. Their first instinct, yeah, is to like s- kick them,
1: run after them, or him.
2: step on them. You know, it's like. They don't have empathy for, like, they it's it, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to look at human, uh, like, the human nature. Now, you're getting to what I want to it, Which is that, like, if you look at that instance, or you see, like, I remember being in a park and, you know, being with, uh, you know, wanting to feed ducks or, or swans. But then you see other little kids, like, throwing, skipping rocks at them. Yeah. You know, like, it's almost like empathy for uh, for living things has to almost be taught. To humanity. Yeah. Which is horrifying. Now, it's a horrifying thing. And so, can you blame an android whose lifespan is only four years to, for not having empathy when it seems pretty clear in many cases, maybe not all, in, in real-life humans, that it's something that really needs to be taught to them. Yeah, or,
1: <laughs> or cultivated in some kind of yeah. way. Or, you know, encouraged, because without it, they can very easily... I think
2: specifically, I mean, I've seen it more in boys than girls. Girls seem to be more nurtur- nurturing towards animals. But it does seem that, like, little kids, like, I'm talking, like, five, yeah, younger than five, like, their instinct is to hurt, is to be rough and try to hurt things.
1: The... Um... Yeah, the paradox in the book is basically that the the android lives in fear because of he the lack of empathy, but then you know, the Deckard himself is dehumanizing himself by. Uh, going after these yeah, things—it's
2: all about. They're not yeah. human so we're not killing them. So if they never—if they were never born, then I can't. They're not taking away their life because they're never really alive, et cetera. Now, justification.
1: Philip K. Dick was a huge, huge uh, animal rights person. Loved cats in particular. Was a very big, and that's kind of ahead of its time. You think about that in the '60s and stuff where, you know, you're starting to see a lot of that nowadays where people are starting to finally worry about the plight of animals and stuff like that, myself included. Mm-hmm. In recent years, I've gotten a big heart for animals in general. So you were talking about the slave aspect. It seems in... Yeah, I was a little bit all over the no, place. But, no, but <laughs> you, you, but in the... You, I was trying to make a lot of points. Yeah, but you see in the slave aspect that Philip K. Dick adopts that idea and brings it into the book in the late 60s that... Even at that point, people like you're saying right now, give an example where people don't care about animals nowadays, and yeah. what happens to well, I them. Mean, well,
2: the thing with you know, and we're not I even mean, slavery. We're not even. You don't even have to go back to slavery to see that people don't feel that you know black people that had had rights. Yeah, you yeah. Know what I mean, I mean, that's just it's less than a century. Ago. Yeah,
1: and you have now where people or you still have the issue where you're saying... And very much 1968. Yeah, you know, right in the real civil rights movement, they're trying to still get, you know, the freedom to, to, to vote and stuff like that and just have full rights and to, to, to integrate. to sit in the same restaurant. Yeah, and drink Quite out of the beautiful. same fountain and stuff like that, especially down in the South. So you have... He takes that idea to today, which that argument you were saying about property mm-hmm. and not thinking, and you think about you can take that and you take that with animals now, sure people are having uh like say up in the Bronx where we live in New York City, people have uh litters of puppies and cats, you know, and they don 't think anything of it, like oh shit, you know they 're going to breed them to fight or whatever, and they don 't care, and then once it 's not their responsibility, and just because they can do it doesn 't mean they just think of them as property, so these poor things, who knows how they 're going to live out their lives and this was a thing where Philip K. Dick envisioned, envisioned this world where in the future we've done such catastrophe to the world that we now know what we've lost. So we, yeah, we yeah. empathize so much and care so much about animals, which we haven't even got to today in, in 21st century. We're, we're starting to care about these animals. So getting to today to today's times, where you still have this issue where people don't care about animals to a certain extent. You, you know, you, you, you are called an environmentalist or you're called, you know, if you're a pita lover or whatever. I, as an example, I, I, I specifically thought, I don't know if I, I was going to be able to bring this up, but last week, every Monday, I, I walk my dog in... Um, Scarsdale, New York, in Westchester, uh, in this neighborhood i'll take them for a big walk and near, in near in this nice homes you know it's upscale neighborhood, you know, sure. very nice, very much like Dick Van Dyke, you know that area of like you know dick Van Dyke show and there's this elementary school that I pass, and every day around twelve noon twelve thirty when I 'm walking around there, the school has recess, and the kids are out you know so last Monday of this recording i'm walking my dog and i'm watching by the bat, batting boxes a group of kids in a circle, guys and girls. And they're like, oh, look at the butterfly. And they're trying to stomp this butterfly. And there's about five or six kids, like boys. Like, you know, I'm saying they're probably like seven or eight. Guys and girls trying to stomp this butterfly. And I was horrified. This is something like out of the beginning of like, uh, uh, what's the name of that movie? The Wild Bunch, where the kids are like, uh, having the ants take over the scorpion, then they light the fire, and they all and that was like a game yeah, that the yeah. general in the movie, the Mexican actor, said like to to what's his face to uh, to what's who's the director Peck and, Peck and Paul like, oh, we used to play that as children, you know, and uh, like what you're saying, what we see in the city all the time, where you see kids just run up and try to ki- people hate pigeons in our in the city, they call them like you know flying rats, and I've come to the point now where I actually carry birdseed. I mean, I try to feed these poor things because yeah, yeah. nobody th- cares about these. No, They're, no, I mean you, you see know. Some
2: of them because of the winter, like some of them like don't even have
1: feet. Yeah, they they they're, they're 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 limping or they or they look like they've been dipped in oil. Uh, their feathers are all tarred and yeah. they're just trying to eat. They're not trying to you know they're not trying to. <laughs> they just want to live. Yeah, they just want to live. And people, it's one of these things where they people completely don't care about. The, the indigenous, well, they're not indigenous because they were brought over here, but now the indigenous populations of yeah. where they live. So I actually went and told on, I, I, I went and grabbed, I mean, call me melodramatic, but I went and told like a school monitor. I was like, this is like, these kids are like, like Lord of the Flags yeah, like a on horror here. movie over here, you know? But it's an example of like children just, you know, children are supposed to be the purest of humanity and like you're saying they have to be taught yeah empathy well, that's, that's the scary
2: thing is like that's what so if you w- have a
1: parent that's not going to teach the, if yeah. the parent doesn't value a cat or a dog or whatever you know a spider or, i mean i remember as a kid stomping on ants you know what I, sure, and yeah. now i actually i won't kill anything yeah, you know yeah. my wife and i have like one of these pita things that it's like a box thing where if you find a spider in your house you could scoop it up yeah scoop it up and then you could put it yeah we do that i don't touch it kill anything but it's like you just think about all the killing that's done in the world and like and so to the point you're making to come around here is like that there's this there's this real lack of empathy where people think uh, and that's a lot of the hypocrisy with people, in my personal opinion, like my wife's a vegan and there's a lot of people who say they're like, we used to say in college, we just have these people who say they were vegans, but they wear leather shoes, they yeah, wear leather yeah. pants, you know, or people who want to save the environment, but they're meat eaters. Or well, it's like, well, if you're going to want to save the environment, yeah. you should be a vegan because the big carbon imprint is all the dairy in the meat industry that the, the, the cost to feed all these animals that they're bringing to slaughter, yeah. you want to save the environment, you know, you become a vegan, you know, you know. So there's that hypocrisy where people can say, oh, I'm, I'm a very nice person. I donate to all these causes, but then they'll wanna go kick a pigeon in the street <laughs> you know, or run something over because yeah, yeah. they don't care. So it comes up there where Dick takes this idea of the animal thing where you know people have come around and they love animals so much only because we've killed them all off. Now we have the idea of there's these, these androids or replicants who are basically now becoming the pseudo animal in the situation and they're wanting to have you know animals you're starting to realize now where there's the sentient beings or things have you know and, and people are starting to realize now like oh you know Dogs and cats can't have emotions, or cows, yeah, or, sure. or animals. You know, you could if you they sit have down the intelligence
2: with intelligence of a four-year-old kid. Yeah, you know, pig, like, you know, like p-
1: pigs are supposedly more intelligent than a dog or a cat. If and if you cultivate the thing right, the thing, the the animal. Like my dog is like a little kid. He'll tell. He's very moody. He'll tell me what he wants or he wants to go like that. You know, but it's also how, the upbringing. You know, so it's so you you take that and you, you put it into the situation of these androids now. Where these androids just want the same thing, but we don't. You're not deemed. Oh, they're just an animal. They're a robot. Yeah, yeah. You know. So it all comes around now. And then, what I think the brilliant thing is that's not really uh, explored in the book. That's explored in the movie. Is what you said at the end of of what you were saying is that. These things now are only four years old, so they're they're, they're reacting to situations as a child would, yeah. and I find that brilliant. Like you have Byron James's character; he's full of rage. You know, he's he doesn't understand things. You know, he, and his first reaction is to like hurt something. Berger Hauer, when he meets Sebastian, he's like, "You got a lot of great toys around here," you know. And yeah, yeah. it's it's so cool that their reactions. You know, like uh, well,
2: even in the book, there's a significant scene in the book which is uh, Isidore, the the Sebastian character from the movie. You know, his parallel in the book is this uh, Isidore character. Uh, he
1: finds a spider. Oh, this is, this is terrible. This, this is something that really upset me when I read the book a couple times. Because now, like I said, I have, I have such a bleeding heart for, for animals. And it's something that I find so traumatizing. To reread, and then we listen to the BBC audio version. And yeah, yeah. Thankfully, they included it in there. Yeah. But I don't think you get the, the B- full there's impact. There's this
2: BBC radio play of it, which I have some which issues is with. Like, which I'll talk which to you with later. Which is only like two hours yeah. long. Yeah, we'll
1: put, we'll put a link in the cast to listen to it. And
2: they try to kind of combine the movie and the book a little bit, but the book is like a nine hour thing you know it's a full novel it's yeah
1: like, it's it's a 300, it's, 300 <laughs> it's like trying to, trying to to condense do, it's like an, a mo- to it it's hard to doing a movie yeah doing a radio play. but they inc- but thankfully they include this part in the in the radio play Isabel which I find, wish they kept kept in the movie he, he
2: finds this uh spider and like we've established in this this discussion is the door in the book is like the embody of empathy he's like he's our empathetic
1: yeah know, embodiment so, in the book Just stop you before you go on so what happens in the book is he shows up and instead in the movie Uh, to to further the plot they realize they need Sebastian to get to Tyrell the corporation so that's why they send Daryl Hannah after to meet him purposely in the book she Priss the Daryl Hannah character just shows up to hide he hears her downstairs and he's like hey there's someone else in the house and she's gorgeous how are you so he strikes up a conversation he's like you know and he feels good about himself and he's like oh I'm gonna have a friend now and then uh, you know, as the book progresses, Batty, Batty, shows, Batty shows up with somebody Batty's else, another girl, Ingrid, I think her name is, and they come over and then when they're over the house and suddenly he's kind of out of his element. Yeah,
2: he's like the third
1: wheel. Yeah, and they're like, go get some stuff for us. And he goes outside to get something is where you say he, he finds this spider in the book.
2: He finds a spider. And of course, we've established that in the book. Uh, animal life is a huge thing it's, and, and it's cherished. unheard of to
1: find anything to find uh, in the like, wild
2: yeah to find like this live thing yeah uh is in the in this dust and, and it's know. crazy so he brings it back to show them and they're like why does it have so many legs like what you know it doesn't need so many legs what if we cut some of its legs off it, it should still yeah, be able to walk legs, right? right
1: i bet you it can only it, it only needs four and, and, yeah, he, and like, he starts freaking out he's like, like <laughs> yeah and he but he's you know, he stutters, he, he's, he has yeah, problem I mean, vocalizing, and he's, he gets upset. So they sit down at the kitchen table, and they take shears, and they start cutting one at a t- And this is an example, I think, that you'd have problems kind of showing in the movie, which I wish they were able to overcome. But my, in the book, it shows he, yeah, yeah. them. And of course, then he's like, you know, it,
2: the thing is like, this could be the last fucking spider.
1: Yeah, and they don't care. But it, it, in the book, it, goes to, it hits it, I think, uh, hits it home for to realize that the reason why they don't have empathy in the book. This yeah. is a pure example of them But my being point empathetic. is, this is
2: a perfect parallel of, like, this is totally the kind of thing a kid would do. Yeah, nowadays. You know? Like, that's my, like, like, the whole thing is what I'm saying is, like, it, they're kids. I mean, it's not even so much that they don't have empathy. Like, I don't believe that kids have empathy. Like, oh, yeah, it, yeah. You know, like, this is totally the kind of thing, like, a regular kid doesn't know any Yeah, with a magnifying glass, trying you know, to like set an ant on fire. Burning yeah. ants. Fire. Like, this is total child behavior. Yeah. And it's horrifying to look at, and it's especially horrifying to look at. We're seeing the context of adults doing it, even though they're androids. But it's why they need to be... This is why they need to be... Retired. Retired. Which is like... That's the big question. Is this not human behavior? Yeah, they should be taught. This is, unfortunately, this is almost human behavior in its purest form.
1: Yeah. Like, this is, like, the default mode for humans. And it transcends (laughs) 50 years to, like, our conversation now where this is still something you have with children. You have that with I'd say at least sixty to seventy percent of the population, with towards animals in general. You know, we gave an example of New York with the pigeons and stuff like that. But it, yeah, I mean, it's any like kind this of
2: this is unfortunately what human nature is actually like. We yeah, have to, it has to be corrected, which is, I guess, part of human nature also. But like human nature at its most basic form is this kind of like an un, un, unempathic, like primal. Need to destroy. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Um So in way, like, I just find that interesting because the whole thing with the pigeon has been something I've been thinking about a lot this summer because I've seen some pretty horrifying behavior, not only from kids but also from adults. Oh, I do too. In the it, city, it, but, and
1: it's yeah, it just drives me. I've, this has been happening for years, and but I've told people off about it. You know, you know.
2: So when we when we translate this to the movie, you're right. Like this childlike behavior. I mean, you can't. We even talked about it a little bit in the Warriors where it's like when we, wa- in the book that the Warriors is based on, they're much younger than they are in the movie. Yeah, they're teens. Um, in, the, in, the, in the movie, they're like in their twenties, but some of their behavior seems very immature. And it's like, it's almost because like that source material, they're so young. It seems like a, such an immature reaction when like Ajax gets oh, yeah, caught yeah. by the police. He, he's like, all, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, and he's it's almost, very, crying, almost like a, yeah. almost the way like a kid would like a juvenile, react. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that kind of like, the way the replicants are are portrayed in the movie, um, and on so many viewings, has become like my favorite thing about the movie.
1: And Well, you start to realize they are developing those emotions, which is kind of sad. Like with yeah. him, with Roy's interaction with Pris, you know, she substitutes in the movie his wife in the book, and mm-hmm. then they have kind of a romance. The one thing
2: I think would have been interesting that's in the book that's not... In the movie, is that Rachel and Pris in the book are the same model? Yeah, so uh, they have have Android, it's, it's, so they look exactly. I the love same. that.
1: So what happens is, uh, as, in mo- as, as in the movie, as in the movie, you know, the the first thing that the guy, his captain, says, "We want you to go to the corporation and test them out to see if the, the, the test will work." And in the book, it's the Rosen Corporation, not Tyrell. And the issue is that in Leningrad, uh, some scientists who came up with the uh, the Voigt comp uh, Empathy test, the mind comp test. The mind comp test. (laughs) uh, They've proposed the idea that the test may not work on people in mental institutions, like schizophrenics, or uh, you know people with mental deficiencies. So the really, really, really big question that that people are worried about is what happens if you test someone and they're human but they test wrong and you retire them and then you kill a real person Mm -hmm. so if that were happened, that would be the biggest like uh, which
2: Rachel asks in the movie yes
1: exactly have you
2: ever retired a
1: human yeah it's hinted at so in the book he goes up to the corporation he meets Eldon Rosen who's Eldon Tyrell in the movie and he insists to take the test Uh, he has the the, the, he meets the the girl which is his niece or daughter in the book she takes the test and then they they she passes the test and uh, they're like, they, they they almost start kind of strong him. Like, you know, you know you like that owl out there, you know. We'll give you the owl if you just say blah, blah, blah. And you, yeah, you and know. they've
2: told them the owl is real.
1: Yeah, they told me, they tell him the owl is real. In cause the book. Because we talked about how big owls are. And that's why, you know. The, it was the first animal to be goats thing. Yeah. And uh, they, they kind of try to make a deal with him. If you go back and say that the Voight-Kamp test worked, you know, well, we won't tell anything because, the, you know, they're worried about their, because they're, they're, They're a company. They don't want anything to happen with their production line. And then halfway through, when he's about to leave, uh, you know, he's believing like shit. You know, I'm fucked. This this didn't work right. You know, uh, this was a complete disaster. My boss is going to be pissed. Uh, Rachel slips up and says it instead of his or her with the owl. Yeah. So he sets back down. He puts the thing back up. He asks one more question, and then he realizes she's fake. And then she leaves the room. And then, as in the movie, he says. To Roach, does she know she's fake? And then there's that whole conversation. She's a, you know, she's a, she's a, she's a replicant or she's an Andy. Does she know? And then we learn that there's new models that, you know, we're starting to give them memories or we're starting to give them certain things. Uh, Where am I going with this? So like you're saying in the movie, halfway through uh, in the book halfway through when he's getting exhausted he calls her up to help her. he calls Rachel Rachel at the corporation in the book to ha- have her come down and help him help get these last the last bunch like which is press. Pris yeah, and Batty glory. and Batty's wife so she comes down and he ends up sleeping with her which is much like the the movie he kind of falls in love with her because of what's going on with his relationship with his wife. He's such stuck in a mire with her being depressed. Who knows if they have a sex life. Gets him strange. Yeah. He, he gets, he ends up, you know, falling for, her. he says, I love you. Do you love me? I'd marry you if I can, you know, even though we're not even supposed to copulate with androids, you know, and on the way back, she slips up and she says, she says to him like, you know, because he, she she slips up and it's realized that she was actually sent down there to 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 not make him go through and kill the other ba- other nexus sixes and it's it's discovered that she's done this seven or eight times with other bounty hunters where he thought she was genuinely having these feelings for him and then that they they had sex because of yeah. the so two it was of them special i
2: thought this was special yeah.
1: and in fact she becomes completely heartless and and uh completely unempathetic and she's like, no, this is what I do with everybody else and then he like says, I'm gonna fucking kill you and she's <laughs> like, that's the reaction every other Bonnie Hunter has too, yep, so, you know, I've I've been there done it. And it becomes real frightening. But what's talked about getting around what you're saying is that she's the exact same model and look as Pris so he was having these struggles when he was going on the last job to the, the tr- apartment yeah. building. So
2: when he tries to go to get Pris, he's he like, am all- I going
1: to be able to do it? He has all these emotions
2: that he has for Rachel.
1: Yeah, and he's like, am I going to be able, just because she may have a different hairstyle, it's going to be her. She's going to sound the same. She's going to look the same. Am I going to be able to pull that trigger, or am I going to see Rachel in Priss's form, which is, yeah, yeah. I think, a great device, yeah, too. Which you know? is something
2: I do wish kind of got translated over to...
1: You know, the movie a little bit. And then I think the last thing for the book is there's this subplot of when he goes to kill the opera singer, the opera singer calls the cops. The cops come and the cops have no idea who he is. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they bring him to another police station. He's like, this isn't the right police station. And then there's all these cops there. And he's like, what the... F-? And then he starts questioning himself. Like, shit, maybe I'm a freaking replicator yeah. or an android. Maybe I've had these false memories. And they bring another bounty hunter in. And then you, you come to find out in the course of the couple scenes that uh, these are all androids. And it's been set up to help androids who are like... Um, what do you call that like smuggling or they're uh yeah i you guess know. it's
2: like uh, the underground yeah it's like underground thing.
1: to try to get them away to like some other place in the world kind of assimilate them yeah. Into, yeah and he finds he finds this place out he kills the one android in there him and the other bounty hunter that a bounty hunter that was assigned to that police station who now is starting to question like wait a minute am i uh real or not they both go back to kill the opera singer. And then there's a really great scene where in an elevator, they just they kill the opera singer and she's screaming and he's like, oh my God. And then the other bounty hunter puts her out of her misery. He's completely, he's basically what, with what um, Deckard's supposed to be. He's completely you know, unemotional about the situation. And he's like, well, maybe this is because I'm a robot. So they sit down they take the test uh, and come to find out that bounty hunter isn't a robot. He, but he's actually working as decker should be and that's why decker's starting to question can i do this job anymore because he's yeah. acting how i should be but i find it so appalling yeah. and i love that aspect of him with the with the other guy phil lesh yeah. i think his name is yeah. with the van dyke you know it's such a great dichotomy and um that's a whole cool subplot in the in the it's, it's a yeah. little it's, it's cumbersome in the book but it's cool the idea of which they kind of put in the subplot of the movie is is he uh Replicant or not Yeah Well yeah. that's discussed in the book But he's given himself The test in the book And he's not an android In the book Yeah yeah
2: Well, like that That scene When he gets brought Into the police station In the book And that of like What's going on It's like very Twilight Zone-y Like yeah. that I loved But it's also Like you said It's kind of cumbersome In the book Like that's part of my thing With the book Was like it's just There's just things about it I, I didn't like about the book But it's like Because like that's a great scene But it's almost... It's it's almost unimportant. Uh, yeah, And <laughs> it's just kind of like in there. Like that could be a book in and of itself. Like that could be like a whole movie. It's like
1: that. Yeah, and that then the thing. idea that they the these but it androids only lasts this... like a handful of pages. Yeah, well, because they got to get back onto the plot. A. That's what I mean.
2: It's like yeah. the book. There's
1: and then the, the book's idea
2: kunky, just like the
1: movies. Yeah, and, and then the idea of the veracity of these androids to hire a real bounty hunter to be there, and then with the balls, and then but he there's this whole fake android. Yeah, <laughs> and then he also retire. He's supposed to come. There's a Russian guy coming over. To, to watch him t- take out these new en- uh, nexus sixes he gets him into the car and they have a conversation he quickly realizes that this is one of the escaped androids posing as a russian cop yeah, and yeah. he kills him in the car and he does that before he goes after the opera singer so that's another great I, uh thing in the book with these the brazenness of these androids were you know uh sometimes hiding you hide in the you know in the most plain obvious sight, plain you know? sight where you know one one's become an opera singer the other one is um now you know hiding within the police department. Some of them are electing to stay a little longer on Mars and have uh, the total recall thing done to them. And they get their mind completely uh, burnt and then they get false memories. So they don't know themselves that they're an android. And that was the dilemma that the other Phil, I think is Lesh is his last name, the other bounty hunter had, am I a, uh, a replicant or an android who just had his memory erased? Yeah, because yeah. some of the androids are saying to him, like, we remember you, you are an android. And he's like, fuck, am I? You know? <laughs> so it gets really fucked up in the movie. you know. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it's, I, that's, those are the aspects about the book I really love. Uh, um, but yeah, I, so that's, I mean,
2: that's the big things about them.
1: The book that's the different book. from the, and, and it'll be, you know, it'd be cool that, you know, you have these, like you have Westworld now on HBO. And it'd be really cool if you take, uh, HBO or a Netflix series and do a faithful version, an adaptation of, of the book. Androids. Yeah, I think that'll become really cool because, for me, I as I was thinking about the dilemma: are they robots or are they just genetically engineered people? It's kind of like Westworld is on HBO now, where yeah. they're not really uh, mechanical earlier versions of them were but they hit some sort of point where there must be they're they're almost genetically engineered where they are people with blood that's why when you shoot them blood comes out and everything they're not just like terminators with an endoskeleton
2: yeah you know one thing that um you know there's more we need to cover and not a whole lot of time to cover it in but one thing i do want to say <laughs> eastbound <down> and down. <laughs> <laughs> we got a long way to go uh, because to i just deal. recently this past weekend saw uh in the theater a trailer for the new blade runner blade runner Twenty forty nine. Now, uh, if you watch Dangerous Days, you hear them talk about like an original
1: opening that which is have. the doc. Yeah, Dangerous yeah. Days, the documentary on. Oh, that. I love that original opening that they that were supposed looks to have. like
2: it's in the mo- in the new movie. They're, that that scene is in the trailer,
1: which is basically the scene is. uh you know they like, storyboarded it, but they never put it in. It was going to be the original. They wanted to ridley scott was like i want to open the movie with a bang and then this was the idea what blake's yeah, about to say is which that, is like we're like on a farm or something and it's very rural and there's big and there's machines like a, there's distance. like a
2: cottage but you see these machines in the distance which are like cultivating the land yeah, coal or the of whatever. whatever and you know this guy gets out of one of the machines comes into the cottage and deckard is sitting like in the cottage
1: well deckard comes yeah deckard comes to the to in in his car comes to the farmhouse and the machines are very much like if people just saw Logan, it's those big machines in the background at that scene with yeah, the farming, yeah. no one's in the cottage. He gets in, there's a there's soup on a stove going percolating. He sits down and I guess maybe time lapse, it gets dark. And then you're saying someone comes into the cottage, this big guy goes over to almost to have the soup realizes there's a guy sitting in the, in the, in the chair, but we don't know who that person is at this moment, but it's the Deckard character we're going to learn later on. And I think what the person just continues on, and then he says, like, you want some soup? Yeah, And nothing is said. He kind of realizes what's happening.
2: What's afoot. Yeah. Uh, But it ends with Deckard shooting him. Yeah. And And this is
1: supposed to surprise the audience. He's like, why is this guy just coming in and killing this guy? where's
2: this? What is going on? Why did he just shoot this guy? But then he goes over and he opens the guy's mouth and, like, pulls out his jaw. Uh, which is like a mechanical jaw to signify that he's a robot and then gets like the serial number off the jaw or whatever. But if you watch the new trailer, it looks like, I don't know how it ends. I mean, who knows how they rewrite it, but it's like the guy who played Batista in the WWE comes walking into a cottage and you see like Ryan Gosling sitting like in the corner and it's like- And there's looks, soup on the <laughs> stove, oh geez, that's I didn't see.
1: I've been purposely, nowadays I try not to do spoilers, I think I've said this in the other cast, so yeah, I try yeah. not to. So I don't know, you know if, uh, you know, I don't know where
2: in the movie or it might, you know, sometimes there's just stuff in the movie, there's in, such in, a, cool, in a trailer that's not in the movie, but it looks like they, they revisited that original opening scene that isn't in the movie. Yeah, there's such
1: cool one. things in this movie that they thought up like, um, to jump around for a second now, At the end here, when Roy Batty in the movie confronts Joe Turkle, Tyrell, and he ends up killing him there's this scene that they did that they didn't shoot, that they were thinking of doing, which I thought would have been fucking brilliant, is that when he takes his head and crushes him, he's an android himself. He realizes
2: that Tyrell is an android.
1: Yeah, and then they realize that they're live, you know, the, like we said before, that the Tyrell Corporation's this big pyramid, that they find this secret room in, in this sarcophagus, very much like an Egyptian kind of a thing, is the real Tyrell, or Rosen, and he's been dead for like 4 or 5 years but the company was worried about letting that get public because they didn't want the stock to get devalued so they made a replacement and that's a lot of the themes you see with Westworld now is Anthony Hopkins a replicant or a uh, or android or yeah, yeah, so yeah. a lot of these themes are being borrowed or taken from like these stories and put into other properties but i thought that would have been such a cool thing you know and that's so almost more disheartening wouldn't have been for Roy Batty to realize that he's he's not even talking to the real person. He's talking to, you know, his his father died four or five years ago. So... Uh, There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, let's get Um, on, I guess, the page of the book. Uh, Let's get on the page of the the movie. I
2: mean, there's, like, things that aren't necessarily... Things that that I found that didn't really seem to be talked about much in the Dangerous Days documentary. Okay. Uh, Like, for instance, uh, the quote... um, the William Blake quote that Batty says to Hannibal Chu.
1: Oh, that's from the American poem. The, uh, the American
2: America Prophecy from 1793. Uh,
1: the, the When Batty comes in and meets um, Chu, and he's like, oh, I have your eyes. The first thing he says, he says a quote from a poem. And yeah, but he misquotes
2: it. The real quote is, uh, fiery the angels rose, deep thunder rolled around their Shores, burning the fires of Orc, and the fl-
1: what's the poem he's, called? Uh,
2: it's called uh, America, a prophecy. Yeah, so and it's kind of it's. It apropos. was published in 1793.
1: It's apropos because it's almost uh, about, talking about the new frontier of America. And, yeah, you know, and then he's using so it so here with we, them.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's talking about the 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 Orc in the mythol in like the mythology of William Blake is. Uh, kind of like almost like a fallen angel but he's the embodiment of rebellion so the poem is about like the the American Revolution and America taking like rebelling against the British and forming what will be you know the American democracy and stuff and people look at that scene and because he come Roy says when he comes in he says this basically that quote but he says instead of the fire angels angels rose he says fire, the angels fell Uh, but people some people look at that and just say like you know uh they're rebelling you know slaves rebelling against their masters or whatever or you know kind of they're also you know they're like the fallen angels coming from you know, descending from Mars to earth. But if you look in like the context of the poem being about the rise of America, the rise of democracy, uh, by saying that in the original poem, saying the fire angels rose, that's what it's about. By Roy, you can examine it and say by Roy saying the uh, fiery the angels fell, he's talking about like the fall of America, the fall of the democracy. It's and like, stuff. yeah, when
1: when all the angels were cast out to to hell, Lucifer and all and by, you know, the great war the angels had with God. and so it's almost and
2: Orc is also uh, the character of Orc in the in the William Blake stuff is also talked about as being kind of maybe uh, looked at as like the young striking down the old, which uh, we see with Roy. Killing his, his father, father, you know stuff
1: like that. So there's a lot
2: of like these little things. The chess game,
1: it's great. The imitation, the it's the uh, what do you call it? It's the ultimate game or the imitation the game? Immortal, 18- the
2: immortal game from, from 1851. It's, the game between Sebastian and Tyrell. The moves that they they're saying to each other uh, from the elevator and stuff are mimicked or they're taken from this uh, legendary chess game that happened in 1851 between it was kind of an informal game during the break of like a big tournament as Uh, you do adolf anderson and
1: uh lionel keser it's funny because ridley scott says this was completely coincidental which i don't believe because that means someone on the on the film had to know what they were doing (laughs) because you can't be this coincidental but the it's become such a uh, huge thing in the world of chess because in the game, the uh, one person Anderson Anderson he he uh, sacrifices what his rook and his queen.
2: He sacrifices both rooks and a bishop, then his queen. So he's, the idea is that this you're is not a, supposed to do that. This in a chess is a game. legendary game that he sacrifices all his really big. You're pieces. You're supposed to
1: just sacrifice your pawns and use your big pieces, but. What he does is he sacrifices his big pieces, and then with the minor pieces, the then, I think the, the the pawns, he's able to then He secures the checkmate. Yeah, with against the king, and then that's something that's legendary because you're you're sacrificing the important things, yeah. you know, to get your end goal, and it's it's a it's a great um, almost microcosm or, for, or or a parallel to this story here. Of what they're doing,
2: yeah. So you know, you take the you take the idea of sacrificing the big pieces and the pawns being the ones that are really fighting the battle in the chess game. We can look at the, at the as the replicants as being they're like kind of like pawns, uh, and what they're seeking is immortality, which is this game is considered the immortal game because yeah. of like its significance. And uh, it's something that people don't ever ways, do. And if we look at Tyrell as being like the king, yeah, It's we see. You know, Roy coming in as kind of a, a lesser piece, the pawn coming in and striking down the king. Yeah. So there's like this whole metaphorical thing going on between this immortal game from 1851 of chess, and it's something that like things that are happening within the movie, which I thought was kind of really
1: interesting. It's very interesting on. because it's something that you're not taught to do in chess because if you're not an experienced player, it'll completely backfire on you. You know, you're yeah. supposed to be taught a traditional. Basically, way. sacrificing the big
2: pieces yeah. for the overall good. Which it's is it's something that's
1: of. not yeah, it's not really. Taught that way, you know. Bobby Fisher ain't gonna teach you that huh, that method, you know. But that's <laughs> yeah, why it's yeah, become Bobby Fisher ain't gonna teach you that shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, in that Bobby Fisher book, I'm playing chess that I own. Uh, but it's something that has become such a classic game because it worked in that in that uh, context. He, he was able to Anderson was able to, to secure the game and win the game by doing such a ballsy. Yeah. It's almost like um, what's his face Kirk reprogramming the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> You know, I mean, the Kobayashi Maru yeah. can't win, but he programs it to to so that yeah, he can yeah. win it. So it's so very, these are these little things that obviously yeah. you don't
2: need to know, but I thought they were cool little trivial things. Uh there are bigger questions that we could maybe discuss, but uh it depends on where Dion would like to go with this. Well, I don't know. So, I mean,
1: sure. I, I, there's just, you know, there's all the little bits of the movie that we we don't really have time to get through, yeah. but okay, let's pick, let's tackle the big questions.
2: Like replicant or, or human? Uh Harrison Ford.
1: Uh Well, I think, uh, in my own personal opinion, and according to Ridley Scott, I think he—he in in Ridley Scott's cut, he's supposed to be a replicant. And Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott seems pretty on record without question. He said in one of the special features, "If you don't see that, you're a fucking idiot." He uses the word fucking in there, (laughs) and there's scenes where you know, especially with the eyes, they use. Oh, you have the same eyes. I noticed
2: watching it this time that Holden has the eyes.
1: Well, maybe, maybe all that's maybe all blade. Yeah. Maybe all blade, you know, and that's something that what's his face. Uh, um, Emmett Walsh knows, you know,
2: um,
1: and something also, what's his face knows then too. Uh, I was going to say John Amos, but that's, what's his face from uh, Edward James. Almost James Amos is what's his face from good times. Uh, (laughs) John Stamos. Yeah, John Stamos (laughs) knows. Uh, Well, this this brings up a big big question. But like you said, Harrison Ford and Ruger Howard are on the other side of the fence saying that he's human. He's human. And this question, there's a a couple of the two big questions that were talked about before uh, even signing on was the fact that the voiceover thing and then Harrison Ford saying he doesn't want him to be a replicant. And Harrison Ford says he got a verbal agreement from Ridley Scott, that yes, okay, he won't be a replicant. And then when this came out, and it was implied that he was, it pissed kind of off Harrison Ford and Roger Howard because Roger Howard agrees because, in their opinions, it kind of makes it a moot point their struggle at the end and uh, Harrison Ford's enlightenment by the end bit of what happens to Roy Batty because if he is himself is a replicant, there's no real point to the to the resolution of the conflict there. Yeah, yeah, or the character arc, but
2: having. Uh, and I believe the writers, or at least Fancher, has said that to him. Yeah, he loves it being ambiguous. Ambiguous, but to him, he's human, but he loves it being ambiguous. So my question is, like, if we take uh, filmmaking as a as an auteur medium, and Ridley Scott's certainly an auteur by uh, any kind of examination of the art form, uh, does his opinion really matter as a viewer? Who's uh, Scott? Ridley Scott. No, because Ridley it's... Scott says he's 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 a replicant. Is that something as a viewer we should take or should, because it's art, does the, does the art maker's opinion really matter or does art really, is it for the
1: masses up to interpretation? It's a, that's a philosophical point of view then yes. because it's such a... Uh, and I ask it to you, sir. <laughs> answer. Don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. Uh, it's it's certainly one of those questions that if you leave it as ambiguous as they have, and you make a movie that's kind of like an art house movie, yeah. where it n- not everything is spelled out for you, you know, did Han shoot first or whatever? It's it's it is left up to like very polarizing uh, points of view for people. Where, where even like we said, academics have wrote about this and wrote entire novels um, pro or con this concept of. Why is it thought that he would be a replicant? What are the what is the benefits in the story? Or vice versa, why is he not a replicant in the story? Uh, I don't know if it, it it it's a tough question because on the on the Because I could just imagine
2: a lot of filmmakers being like, This is what Ridley Scott says, that's the way it is. Yeah. And my question is like well, you, Does, does it, that really matter? You, even though that's his even though that's the artist's intent and but leaving it. Explain the way he does, which is somewhat ambiguous, even in the final I think cut it, de- it, it
1: depends on what you're you're talking about here. If it's a movie like this where it's left so ambiguous and if it's left up for interpretation, I think then you, what you're saying applies. Maybe the yeah. artist creating the art doesn't have to have the deciding factor. But if it's a if it's a clean cut like Who Done It, like Clue, and you, you <laughs> yeah. know I mean? And, and then like you know, Miss, Colonel Mustard did it, and then you're going to tell me no, the butler did it because I think so, and I don't care what yeah, the movie yeah, tells yeah. me. Then, then you get into some problems. i'd be
2: interested uh to hear what people think about kind of that yeah idea. if you want to
1: contact so us what on is...
2: facebook or twitter yeah let uh, us this idea of does the does the artist's intent really... or drop
1: us an email too or drop us an email at, at our site That's... you know
2: uh yeah i'm just interested i mean one what do you think is he a replicant or not a replicant two does ridley scott kind of unemphatically like you know,
1: definitely, uh, undeniably stating that he is a replicant. Does that really matter? To because you? we get into the different cuts of the movie here uh, are brought in because in the original version we have some uh, pointers that he may be a replicant. Uh, example: uh, If I'm going to talk like Colchak, the Night Stalker. Example: um, <laughs> All the replicants love their pictures. And they're they're very like they're almost trying to create their own memories for themselves yeah, or have. Well, that's
2: yeah. So I guess I you, mean that's something that's brought up a lot, and I guess we see that. Uh, well, so
1: that's where I'm going with this, where she has all these photos. Well, she comes she over. She's one. like she's like, look, I have a photo and of me and my mother. Yeah, and what's his face? Uh, Byron James loves his photos, but he loves his photos. But can we say that now that it's a replicant thing? I don't, don't know. Well, so yeah. So then to further that along on on. Uh, Decker's piano, he has a bunch of photos, and, and that, that, like you said, people say that it's that the, the memories of them being or not the ones who don't know if they're real or not, they collect they're basically collecting memories. Yeah, because by collecting photos. even on a subconscious level. And I noticed her photo is her sitting on the uh, front porch with her mom, and there's a very similar, like the first photo you see on his piano mm-hmm. is almost the identical porch with him sitting with a mother figure in the same position which is, you know, that's almost questionable. It's a White House. It's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a, They're on like a portico f- porch, and, you know, and he's sitting there. So there's that idea of, you know, he has the same likes or he had, you know, of they do. There's the other part, you know, with you the eyes. That when
2: there's a part where we see her picture where it's still, and then it becomes yeah, motion. Yeah, moves for a second. yeah a, a second. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's in the original cut, too. So that's yeah, kind of yeah. cool that it kind of, it, it's an effect that people may not notice you know, if you're not paying attention or on the first viewing, uh, I'm trying to think of any other, uh, telltale I mean, like, signs that, that, Well, you have, hey, uh, yay you, or nay, you have, uh, gaff be like, you've done a, you've done a man's job. So oh yeah. So oh, yeah. So then you get into the different cuts of the movie. So you have, but that, the EB
2: there's, there are other cuts that have more to that, but even that's even in the theatrical. Cut, yeah. Where he says like, you've done a man's job. Like what does that fucking mean? Maybe you're grown up. You did, you did like you know. You, <laughs> yeah, but it could you mean, mean like, that you've done a yeah. You've done a. You're like, a robot, but you've done a, the, you,
1: what a man's you know, a, a, a human's job. And then the, you know, the you have the origami of the
2: like you said the eyes is a thing that people point to. Yeah. They have like the replicants have this orange
1: glow in their eyes that you see, and you see that predominantly with the owl, and um, you have the origami unicorn. Where in the original cut, that's supposed to signify that Gaff had been there. And they even though they, anything. yeah, he was supposed to retire Rachel because she went AWOL. He, by saying that line, like, uh, what does he say? Like, we all have to live, but he, remember he says that line, like, we all, they just want to live, but who actually really does? Yeah, yeah. And it's repeated in Harrison Ford's mind. That gives him the idea, like, okay, let's run. They they, they um, rabbit or they they flee. And in the original cut, I guess it's supposed to be implied that Gaff had been there decided not to go in and kill her. So he's almost letting them uh, yeah, take yeah. off and flee. But then when you have the remastered cut or the the, the, the 90, the cuts after the that. Director's cu- the un, the, un, uh, the director's cut, the authorized director's cut and then
2: the final cut, there's this unicorn scene.
1: Yeah, you have a unicorn scene where it, earlier in the movie when Harris, of at by the piano, he falls asleep and he's dreaming of a unicorn. And then at the end of the movie, with that unicorn, the origami, that's led you to believe that as Terrell said before, they know their memories because they're downloading them off a hard drive. That's why Harrison yeah. Ford knows the memories of Sean Young's character yeah, yeah. about doctor and stuff. One of those is Barbara Hershey's memory. Evidently. What's his face? The first, um, what's his name? The first script writer, uh, oh, uh, uh, Fancher. Hampton yeah. Fancher. He was friends with Barbara Hershey and Barbara Hershey gave her him the story of when she was little, the spider outside her, outside her window yeah. and that happening. So, that is leaves is he do they know his memories and dreams because yeah, yeah. Of the, you know that's what he's trying to imply there There's does almost know something that we don't uh, know so I don't what, what do you think uh, I don't know riddle me this Batman <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it I kind of like it both ways like I don't know if it needs to be answered uh, you might know might know the final cut the 2007 cut more the better than I do because I haven't seen it since 2007 what is implied and is the unicorn bit from legend in that yeah yeah and there's a question
2: as to whether he there's the 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 rumor has always been that they shot this footage for the of the unicorn for legend yeah they were doing tests and then
1: uh but they even though they were in pre-production for legend they were still in post-production for blade runner so they kind of used some of that money from blade runner that was left over and they put it on the Blade Runner's budget, but it was actually tests yeah. for the unicorn. But there are
2: questions. There's, there's dispute of that. The guy that works with, uh, I think Ridley says, no, that wasn't shot for Legend. It was actually shot for this. That was my intent. The guy that is like, seems like he, in the documentary Dangerous Days, seems like he's worked with Ridley a lot. The guy who seems to like to be Ridley's right-hand man on the film. He seems to say, like it was shot for Legend, but I think Ridley really... To that, yeah, like that. really insert it
1: for it. Did he really insert it in the in that? It, it, he he must have inserted it, even though he didn't personally. He oversaw the ninety-one cut, so he must have told them to put that in. No, I, no, I would, no, no, like editor just gonna. <laughs> you know, we got this crazy yeah, footage. Let me put yeah, it. In. I'm gonna take something from he did from <laughs> Alien and, and have Harry Dean stand You know, so there must have been some uh, sort Harry of. Harry Dean. I know he just passed. God bless him. Um, uh, but yeah, you know the 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 unicorn thing is definitely in there. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it is left to be ambiguous even though Ridley has a firm position on it, Harrison has a firm position on it. Now, uh the next there's a there's
2: other things I would love to talk about. I mean, just uh on a sign up because that scene that you brought up with Sean Young, my two favorite scenes, two favorite moments for Harrison Ford. Acting moment when he's with uh Mm, at Walsh. Yeah, and he's like, well, "Why would they risk coming back here?" I don't know. There's something about the way he delivers that line that just I love it. Like it seems so natural. It's like my favorite piece of acting from him in this movie. What <laughs> scene is that?
1: Was is that when they're in the apartment, or is that the scene when they're, they're watching the footage? They're watching the, the, in, the, in the smoky yeah, Citizen Kane screening room. Why
2: would they risk coming back here? Like, yeah. What's the? This is like the way he, I find Walsh's
1: the, dialogue in that kind of cumbersome.
2: Yeah, well, a, yeah, there's a Cause, lot of because there's
1: when we get into the voiceover track, a lot of people talk about the issues they have with the voiceover track and Harrison's delivery. And I was looking at some could argue that you look at even Walsh's dialogue, some of it sounds cumbersome. Like yeah. for me, to, to talk about the voiceover, I hadn't seen it for how many years? I thought it completely worked up until that last... Bit, you I know, almost they, they needed yeah. to wait a beat or two for that last bit of. I don't even monologue. know needed that at all. When, but I talking like about when Rudger Howard dies. dies. Yeah, but I like, like. I don't know why he didn't <laughs> yeah. kill me Who knows why he didn't kill him? <laughs> you know, it's like he's wrapping everything up. But I like in the work print version, the monologue there. He says better. Because in the work print b- version, it, it it's a couple. It waits a beat or two more, and then he says, "Like I don't know how long it took him to die, but he fought." Yeah, well, it's also he had like better model. Yeah, he's a like better I've, piece of. You know, he's like a, he book fought book. it, and he he was there for the whole time, and you know, it took him a while, and I I sat and watched, and then you know the dove thing, the dove goes yeah, off, yeah. and it's, I almost it's touching.
2: Think, I yeah, you're right. In the work print version, the voiceover in that moment is just a better voiceover. I yeah. mean, it's better written. Um, in terms of the voiceover throughout the movie, I'm kind of with you. I liked it. I don't know if it needs it, but I enjoyed it. And I almost think. I almost feel like it. I almost feel like it doesn't work in the context of the movie because there's not enough of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like so, for stylistic purposes. So what they do is uh, very quickly when they want to. Turn this into a movie, they realize it's going to be very film noir, so we're going to have a lot of the tropes of, you know, what's her face looking like Vivian Lee, she's going to have Joan Crawford's side uh, shoulder sure. pads, you know, she's going to have that haircut, he's going to be film noir with the with the Venetian blinds, you know, so it's very future noir. So uh, one of the first things they realized is like, um, in the earlier versions of the script, Harrison Ford had problems with the voiceover, he was like, let's have the character detect these and show yeah, it as opposed show it to happening instead of saying him yeah. saying it, which was agreed there was to vi-
2: there was voiceover in the original script. Yeah.
1: But then they tried to do it. They showed the work print to test audiences. They didn't like it. So, uh, the producers are like, this shit don't make sense. Yeah. We'll have him explain it. And what's his face. <laughs> and, and, Ridley Scott admits like, I agreed with him. It didn't make sense. I agreed. We did need the voiceover at that point. So he said, since we're coming at, like it's a Philip Marlowe, uh, Raymond Chandler esque, Let's have it be the private detective. Let's have that voiceover because that's kind of the idea we're going for. And that was the reason why it was put in to to try to bridge the gap to some things. And then it was subsequently put in for the the theatrical cut. I found in all the versions over the past years, the scenes like when he's looking at their photos and he's enlarging stuff, it's kind of confusing what's going on. And then I found that after all those years of trying to guess of what's happening with the voiceover he's explaining stuff that i you know he's he's telling you questions things. that you have yeah he's explaining that a wider right away like about this this uh, the snake scale or this or what is that he's and you know and certain aspects about you know um when they're in the car when he's driving in the spinner eating his noodles and they're going to the police station at the first scene and you see yeah. that beautiful Did you know you
2: watched uh in your prep before we started watching all the final ver- all these versions, did you watch? There's like this alternate introduction that it's just like at some point of like in the deleted scenes, and it's where you see like the Holden scene where Holden's like in the tube. Oh yeah, I watched Yeah, the hospital. But it but there's this whole introduction of the movie, and it's like it when it comes down, it opens, and he's and Harrison Ford's in the newspaper, and he's like. Yeah, I used to be married, but my wife ran off
1: with, yeah. you know, some guy and in I the hope new she's, world. Uh, yeah, She I hope she's dying. Like I on like that. Yeah, like it's like I felt like it needed more. Oh, you see. so in the in in the in the establishing shot in the rain when it comes down and you finally find Harrison Ford reading his newspaper the Yeah, with that the with that Japanese uh, character. Yeah, and he says, yeah, and I was almost waiting for that. to." I got so confused with all we saw <laughs> I that know. I didn't realize. That like, was my
2: worry. You know, no, it's, it's like, like <laughs> what's what's in the version? What is it?
1: Like, I'm going to get confused. So that was, yeah, I really liked that. Like, you know, because that explains away in the movie why he doesn't have a wife. He had a wife. But she left him. As we said in the book, he but did but also have,
2: it sets up like stylistically this idea of the voiceover being very film yeah.
1: noir Setting it up as a device. And also you don't feel bad then later on, which you could maybe in the book that he... Even though it is a robot, he does kind of commit adultery on his wife in the book. Yeah, in the yeah. movie, he's got an ex-wife. She's not even in the picture. It doesn't yeah. matter.
2: I almost felt... What I'm saying, like other than the ending, which I don't like the voiceover after when Batty dies... Like, I almost, like, I almost feel like it needed to have more. Yeah, feel a little, so for for it feels
1: a little more. Instead yeah. of it
2: just being, like. Sparse. Feels dropped in in those spots. Yeah as opposed to like a more uh, organic piece of the film. Yeah,
1: that's why with issues with the work print, I feel like I don't know who was cutting at the time because some of the stuff I wish they kept in, the scene when Holden gets shot at the beginning, I love the when he goes to the wall and he puts his head down and, and you, you you sit on it for a minute or two on the adding machine or something. Yeah, yeah. I love that bit as aside from the really quick, quick cut in the theatrical version to the next scene and then the thing with Pris dying against the wall i liked a little more of her seeing her hit the wall as opposed to just yeah, an abrupt yeah. cut so there was i agree with you i think they should have used a little more of the voiceover just in certain scenes because then you forget that it you have voiceover yeah, yeah. and then suddenly you know you, you know whereas
2: in the work print i feel like there's
1: only the end part, right, has voiceover. I don't, I don't even know if they have voiceover at all. In well, the you thing. said that the work part. I, I just meant for the for the cuts, yeah, yeah. extending the scene where like yeah. of the, the holding getting shot. They yeah. cut on that abruptly, yeah, yeah. as opposed but to I work for.
2: But to my recollection, that work, that piece of monologue that you, that oh, of, you're right. It is. You're right. It, that is in the work for because there is. That's a, the only piece of. Yeah, V.O. because I you think.
1: see. Yeah, because there's another shot which I think is great too. There's a wider shot and you see the spinner come up between the two buildings and that's not in the real version. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. Have the yeah. spinner come up, realize, then it comes off quickly, and then it must land, and that's where they, you know, then they, they pick it up in the theatrical yeah. version.
2: Now, to you, uh, the significance of Batty saving
1: oh it's brilliant his life yeah deckard's life i think that's a i think that's amazing because then it's it's almost like he at that moment realizes that was a lot of that rugger howard's performance he says was ad-lib the part it was his decision to grab a dove and i like the idea that he's holding the dove because he like he he wants to tangibly hold like a life in his hand so he's holding on to that near the end like he's trying to keep life and then the idea he realizes, because he's been killing people left and right, he realizes what life kind of is. So he, he purposely saves Harrison Ford because of whatever reason. I mean, you know, that, that's even questionable. The, yeah, the morality and then this of it. idea
2: of he's... he's not human so he doesn't have a soul but then this idea of the dove flying is supposed to symbolically be that like he does yeah his soul is escaping him because he's dying now uh, that that
1: and that end monologue is amazing that people have been quoting that to me for years about you know if and i like that idea there's that whole if you want to get into like symbolism about the eyes in the movie there's like yeah but uh, uh, yeah but but i kind of like
2: this idea of uh, well, it goes, It has to go with the eye thing. He says
1: to, you know, uh, Mark says to shoot. If you can only see the but, what I've seen with your eyes. Oh, yeah, it's such great lines. That, but
2: then, like, the monologue at the end where he's like, uh, I've seen things people wouldn't, uh, you people wouldn't believe, uh, attack ships on, uh, on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain. Uh, all all rugger howard yeah uh my question is to me uh this idea of and i guess because i've been thinking about like immortality uh it been thinking about mortality a lot over like the last 10 years and this idea of that we live we are immortal because people the people we've touched You know, like Mm -hmm. even though physically we die, but in in a sense we live on because of the people we've touched, we're remembered. Uh, Does he save Harrison Ford and tell him these things so that, in a sense, even though he's dying at this moment, he will live on? Harrison Ford will never forget him for this. Yeah, he owes him one. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like Harrison Ford, and even in that in that work print, he says, "Like I sat and I watched him die, and it took a long time, and it was painful." Blah blah blah. Which we lose, which is actually a beautiful piece of uh, voiceover. Yeah, it says a lot. You know, it adds a lot to it. I think, which we very few people have seen. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, heard that voiceover, but this idea of, in a way, saving him, doing this one last good thing uh is one yes he appreciates life more than he's ever appreciated now that he's about to lose it but two by saving him telling him like you don't you won't believe the things i've you know that i've witnessed like the the life i've lived not you know lived in in a very human sense and all this all of it will be gone the minute i die
1: it's something that but we do you
2: yeah. By like, me you, telling you this, you will saving it, your I'll life. in some way, I will be forever. Rem- kind of, I will be remembered. Yeah. Like I'll live on. i I will now be immortal in a certain sense.
1: I feel like that's an issue, especially with our generation, we're starting to cope with more or kind of wrestle with more than I think prior generations for whatever reason. That we all want to be individuals and have this kind of make some sort of mark, but we don't know how to do it. And I I think I'm with you where the past 10 years or so, I've suddenly realized with the aging of settling down, getting married, and getting into the next steps of your life, what do you want to do in your career? That mortality is something you suddenly realize that, like, shit, in 20 years, I'll be almost 60 years old. That's frightening where I still don't look at myself as a grown up. I still think of myself as a kid. (laughs) You know, and it's, and it's, and it, you know, it it's frightens, you know, I I mean, I don't know if it's a pastime, but I like walking around cemeteries. I, there's a big mm-hmm. one near where we used to live, Woodlawn Cemetery, that I'll bring my dog and we'll, you know, for a nice big walk and you see all these tombstones everywhere and you don't even know who these people are. And it's amazing yeah. to think that this guy lived for 105 years, but I don't know who the hell he is. Yeah, yeah. And it's a theory that, of all people, uh, Megyn Kelly told me about, where it's this thing where like, uh, it's like the Paul Newman theory, where you like a guy like Paul Newman who you know, he was a, a, a beautiful man uh, physically and, and as a person. He touched people's lives because he was a, an amazing actor. He was such a great uh, um, like a philanthropist. Uh, ph- yeah, philanthropist. He has all these... Uh, great, uh, like, Newman's Own products. He has this entire thing of, you know... Just gives money to charities. So. Charities. He has these these all these different things that still go on. But he died, what, maybe 10 years ago. And in, in 20 or 30 years, people may not even know who he is. Yeah, and he'll be like, it's the guy on the... Yeah, the, and the on the box of something. Because <laughs> on the, on the you look at, like, 100 years ago, Lon Cheney Sr. or uh, Mary Pigford, or uh, what's-his-face? Um, uh, what, what's the great guy, the, the hunk... Uh, that everyone loved that he died at a very early age. Um, uh, b- 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 James b- Dean? No, from the silent era. Oh. Um, uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. You know, he's the he's the real, um, oh shit, it's on the tip of my freaking tongue. Uh, but anyway, it's like, these people were so iconic and were so, uh, you know had such an impact then yeah but for whatever reason because people are, are ignorant or just because the other these famous people have slipped the mind that people don't know who they are anymore so it, it kind of there's a counter argument that people don't it doesn't matter what you do because in a generation or two you could be the richest man the most giving man the most popular man you know you're just gonna f- fall to the Ends of time because eventually you'll be forgotten. Yeah, by anybody because you know your family's going to die, even in your family. You know, in, in three generations. You know, do I know who my great great grandfather was? Not really. I may yeah. know his name. I may not know his name, but he lived a life, and because of him, I'm here. So it's kind of, yeah, yeah. it's weird to think that you know. There's this issue where the only way to have a immortality is either to leave something in movie form, in art form, in book form, in any kind of form. But even word of mouth isn't good because once... In podcast in form. In podcast <laughs> form. Because once Harrison Ford dies, um, uh, you know, he's gonna... Um, you know, he, no one will remember Roy Batty to a certain extent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, what the fuck is that guy's name? Shit, it's on the top of my tongue. The, he's the, the, the really good-looking... Uh, Casanova kind of guy, Valentino. Yes, there you are, Rudolph Valentino. He was huge, and he died very tragically. And he, I think people were, you know, it's a, like you said, like James Dean. You know, I, I bet you today you went out and polled people. You know, twenty. You know, people might not even know who James Dean is. Yeah, they might know. They might he know showed his, him a picture. Yeah, they might recognize like, that oh, yeah, guy. He's from a commercial. Before. Or a gene ad, but you know, yeah. so it's it. There is a you know, no matter what you do in this world, yeah, you know, in a in a in a hundred years, people may not know who the hell you it's are. It's just uh, his
2: monologue. Rudger Howard's monologue at the end is so great, and even by uh, the writer's account, David Peebles, you know, much of that was ad, not, maybe not even ad lib, but come up with by Rudger Howard. Yeah, because I think, the, the think Rudger Howard kind of like said that before they shot it. He's like, I have these I have these ideas yeah. of things I want to say. And it's like the part, part on of the that page is, was too clunky. Yeah. And, and people part, wouldn't get parts it. of it, like the spirit of it's there, but then he just continued it on and he came up with the idea of like tear like uh
1: the tears. And it's tears so apropos to what we're talking about here. Like the whole reason of this movie is these guys wanna live live longer to have a life. Yeah. And the idea of people nowadays, that the you and I who have nine to five jobs, uh, whatever what we do and people who are wasting lives, or the first world problems, where you wake up and your car won't start or whatever. But at least yeah. you have, you can eat three times a day. You, yeah, you know that's slow. That yeah, day. that you know, and it's and, <laughs> and it's it's and then you realize, you know, when you're sitting there in a convalescent home when you're 80 or 90, did you waste your life worrying about bullshit? And yeah. I know personally that's a big problem I have, where I'm always worried about tomorrow. But then people say you got to live for today, and it's 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 something to grapple with. So you have these story where it's these guys, they have a four year life cycle. They want to extend their life because suddenly the the, mora- the mortality is very evident. They don't know how to do it. And then when you get to the point where he confronts Joe Turkle, Tyrell, and he's like, we can't, we don't know how to, we don't know how to um, extend your life because once you start, you can't be reprogrammed. It's it's yeah. frightening, you know? So there is a, even though they are supermen, yeah, yeah. They, they're gonna die in the, in the, how can you live in four years? But he's, he's saying, look at the life I've had in the four years I've yeah, lived, yeah. you know? Um, I guess there are other bits of stuff we should, you know... The ending? ...touch on. Yeah. Uh, talk about the tagged-on, quote-unquote, happy ending. The, yeah, because of after the, the works print, it, it ends with an abrupt cut of him finding the origami, and he's like, and okay... They go in, and like, the elevator. elevator door shuts. And then that's yeah, it. that's, like, the end. So people were a com- great fucking ending. Yeah, people were kind of confused, like, what the hell? So, um, which I don't really have a problem with. No, the, to that, me, it's like... That last bit I of them in the car. I that it's like they don't say anything. There's just, it's just, they, they, they wanted to have them driving out in the country. And then they're like, how are we going to do that? And, Ridley Scott realized, and he was tr- f- true, that like, oh, I have friends with Stanley Kubrick, he just finished The Shining, the opening shots of The Shining, you know, he didn't shoot anything in America, he didn't step foot in America because of his issues with America, and, and he shoots everything in England at that point. So he must have had rolls and rolls of film that was shot, so yeah. he, they borrowed some stuff from The Shining, which I didn't know, yeah. and they and then they have, they shot Harrison Ford and um, Sean Young in the car on a flatbed driving through the woods of England, And they just had some dissolves between that. And some voiceover. Is there a voiceover? Yeah, because he's like... Oh, yeah, because then he says he realizes that... What Gaff
2: didn't know is that... Tyrell told me that she is
1: different. And then people say that that's like a throw ending, but I find that believable because if she's supposed to be the next... She's supposed to be the first of the kind of replicants that didn't know she was a replicant or not. Yeah. If you take out the Harrison Ford bit. Mm -hmm. uh, If he's a replicant or not and if he knows. But she's not supposed to know. The idea is that... Everybody thinks first. she
2: has a four-year lifespan, but she doesn't. Yeah, because... Tyrell she, told him, Harrison Ford in private and then, that she's special.
1: Yeah, and then that if she's live. the first one to have these implants where he's like, my God, you're talking memories. So that why not, if, if she was supposed to be the embodiment of his daughter or his niece, maybe she would be the first one, too, that doesn't have this lifespan. Yeah, yeah. That if, he, if they have the ability, unlike the book, to extend the life but they just choose not to because they're worried about them developing emotions maybe tyrell did
2: because he's also like we give them memory because it's
1: easier to kind of control them (laughs) yeah you know they don't just freak out they don't just wake up we they have a basis of yeah you know they're it's the my
2: uh, thing is with the like i don't even mind so much this idea that they leave to run off but i kind of feel like if she had a four-year lifespan it would Make that ending so much more tragic
1: that she that she's gonna die in two years or he's yeah but it's
2: like we're gonna go and make the best well because he we're gonna go and we're gonna make the
1: best life we can in those two years doesn't he worry isn't that see I've seen so many cuts of the damn movie (laughs) after Roy Batty dies he runs home and he thinks she's dead right. And he pulls yeah, the covers yeah. well, it's back, because and it's, Gaff
2: is like that. He kind of hints, like you know, it's a shame about the girl kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and he runs home, and first you don't know if she's there or not, and then when yeah, he pulls it, she's back. She's he's there, expecting and, her to be dead. Yeah. yeah, and then she moves, and he's a sp- surprise. And it's a very subdued performance by. But he thinks because Gaff might have retired. Or oh, I thought it was because she might have. just Oh, maybe and maybe Gaff ran sound out like her lifespan. Yeah, it's so he's short. worried. Oh my God, if his just turned off, maybe hers will too.
2: But I could even I could go with the the ending where they're driving around in the mountains and the woods. Yeah, they found. Um, but it. if
1: it was like there was something
2: bittersweet about it, which is like they get to be together. But they have but, like they're going to make the best life they can for. They're really going to live for these last two years yeah. while she can still live. And it's being so so like Of course, who knows? Like she's fucking like Highlander now. Yeah, she Now, now he's going to get old and die. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. You know, and it's you know and she's going to be and, left alone. Yeah, and it's, and the other thing is a little more um, believable, like people who have terminal illnesses or they're in yeah, a remission yeah. of a cancer or something, where it's like you have a. You only have you're you're hooked up to a dialysis machine or something where you only have a certain amount of time to live, so you have to live. That's that's very tragic to yeah. to suddenly realize your mortality, and then you're like, shit, what do I, I? You know, it's like the bucket list. Well, I only have six months yeah, to live. Yeah. I have to do.
2: But I do have to admit, I loved the, the work print, which I'm, to my recollection is how the final cut ends too, which is it ends on that elevator door closing because it's, it's there's like a momentum, and you almost like it leaves you kind of wanting more. And like, is there going to be another one? Like, it gives you it gives you an implication even more so to me than the fact that we see that they drive away, that they're going to go live together. Even more so, like, leaving on the momentum of them leaving with the door shutting, it almost implies that there's this whole other story that's going to happen. And yeah. Like, they're going to... There's more adventure.
1: <laughs> yeah. And for
2: some reason, to me, it was more satisfying than...
1: Yeah, with, with the idea, with all the um the cuts, I love that the, the producer of the movie, The Englishman, he says that... The, the, uh, the, the quote he says which I think is great he says the terrible thing about Blade Runner is that Blade Runner was made for people who didn't understand what they what the movie was about and that's the reason why there's all this confliction of cuts and stuff like that you have all these different ideas and nowadays we see that all the time and like where I work uh, on the twelfth floor of my building, I can look out at night and I can look at Times Square, and it looks like it's freaking Blade Runner. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. it's, it's amazing well, I have that it's like irrational
2: thing. where like, I'm afraid to visit Japan because, like, because seeing it as a kid, seeing Blade Runner as a kid, and just seeing like those geisha. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, and, like, and, it's, and that was the and like him trying to order food. Like at first, I'm
1: like, I don't want to go to Tokyo because it's, it's <laughs> going to be just like Blade Runner. People are going to be speaking city speak and all that kind of thing and all that kind. Of, and it's it's interesting because that was the thing that 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 Japan was going to the Asian Asia was going to foreshadow us, and then it was going to be a end of cultures and that's why you have these big geishas like they say like you know the one geisha she's popping pills in her mouth and it's supposed to be birth control pills because she says something in Japanese there's so much we have so much condensed that we didn't talk about like uh, what's his face Sid Mead the futurist and illustrator uh, and and they're uh
2: influences from mobius Mobius, who we always
1: all the time and come up on the show and because of his the french artist who worked on heavy metal and they actually asked him if he wanted to to work on this but he couldn't because he was doing another movie and he really regrets it now to do some of the concept work but um the idea of uh all the we have this is a great example of a sci-fi movie of an 80s picture like we've been saying all this seems like this year of pre-cgi and One of the only things you'll ever hear me say about the downfall of practical effects is all the shit that goes into it that you never see. And I mean the detail. I mean, you look at, say, that blimp going by and it says Pan Am on it. It's, you know, all these little things, the parking meters that say they're gonna zap you. There's uh, like Tit Job or, you know, there's all those magazines that you never see. There's so much stuff. Or when they're flying, you have the buildings and inside the buildings they've, they made, you know, they put like, the furniture in, and people, and lights, and it's so detailed, and you never see any of that, you know. And I realize you have to overdo stuff to make it believable, but it's just—it's so sad that there's so much that goes into it. Like they had signed on, was it? Uh, it's Sid Mead, I think. They were paying him like fifteen hundred dollars a day. And he worked on the movie for like two years, and all of a, that's one of the reasons why they went over budget because they're paying him like a yeah. retainer of fifteen hundred dollars a day. So there's so much concept that went into this movie, and the beautiful, beautiful, just practical effects of the um, of the forced perspective with that opening shot and how they did that, and then the buildings, and we talked about the theory in Batman the the concept of the, uh, what do you call that? The urban planning. And the idea in the movie was that you had a lot of these older buildings and they just retrofitted stuff on the outside. So I love that there's like older, it looks like Art Deco buildings, but there's tubes and pipes and all that kind of bit. You get the idea about the kibble from the book, the trash, because if you look at everybody's apartment, there's bits everywhere, you know, like like the stuff is almost uh, breeding on its own. I uh, say I. I, the, I mean, the art direction is amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's you a gorgeous know, movie. they got the neon signs from the Francis Ford Coppola movie, one for, for one for one from the heart that flopped. That's where Tom Waits actually met his wife, Kathleen Brennan uh, on that movie, because she was like a script supervisor and he did the music for. Her, but they had all this neon signs. So they got so like, especially the cowgirl in that scene, that's from her. Uh, I mean, Joanna Cassidy in this movie, I completely forgot that we just did Roger Rabbit a couple months yeah. ago, and that's the same Joanna Cassidy in this movie, and she's so gorgeous in this, but it's her body type in this movie is so much like she's a pleasure model, but she is an assassin. You mm-hmm. have that like, perfectly cast, and it's amazing, which I think we just touched on maybe a month or two ago that we talked about that, like, when they did the 2007 cut, they had her reshoot the stuff, and she said that she was loved how she was still able to fit into the <laughs> yeah, to yeah. the older I think 25 years we on. We talked
2: about Roger Rabbit. There was talk that instead of Linda Carter, they talked about casting her as Wonder Woman.
1: Oh, yes, Joanna
2: Cassidy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then we and, see her like, in this athletic. Yeah, and, and she's amazing. And, 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 and I mean,
1: Blade there's runner. so much. I mean, I feel like we, we can almost do a part two about it because we have so many notes that we didn't even get to, but like yeah. the DP, Justin... Cronin Weth, he was developing like uh, Parkinson's on set. And by the end of the sh- sh- shoot, he was in a wheelchair. And, you know, they had to really help him with stuff. And it's just,
2: yeah, there's I, so much in this movie. I recently is, came back from California. When I was in California with a friend of, uh, old roommate of mine and an old friend of ours, I got to go. Uh, we brought him up on the cast. To, the, to the, one, the Warner Brothers lot. And so, and I'd been to the on the, like the official tour, but here's like we kind of got this private tour of the Warner Brothers lot. So walking around this like New York City back lot street, which is where they shot all the exteriors, except oh, yeah. for the Bradbury Building uh, and a couple of the driving scenes. It, it's kind of it, it's it's amazing to see what it's like like on an everyday basis, and then juxtaposed it, like how much fucking work they did. And it's just to make hey, all the it, money that goes to into making Blade Runner. And rather. they
1: said that there was a um, there was a. Uh, a, there's always strikes, and, and there was some sort of union strike, and because of that they they had an extra amount of pre-production time, and that saved them. So they had nine and a half months of pre-pro, and they were able to really use to to develop storyboard, and that really helped them develop all this stuff that they ended up having that strike and that's yeah. amazing just all this preparation that goes in and just sadly you look at all these special features there's so much in this world you never see like yeah, like i said yeah. the parking meters are supposed to electrocute you if you don't do something right or all the little stickers and the signs and japanese and all this detail. but I,
2: I recommend if anybody goes out to hollywood and uh if you're going to do a store a studio tour i recommend the warner brothers one i've been to the paramount tour i've done the sony tour i've done the universal tour i love the warner brothers a lot uh, and their tour totally worth doing it's a little pricey Uh, this time like i said this time was more like of a private we just kind of walked around the two of us and his friend which was awesome uh but at the end of the tour the official tour there's this museum that has the central perk friends set like coffee shop set and uh, it's actually a pretty cool little museum as you walk through, it, it takes you through each step of the filmmaking process. But in that museum, as you walk through towards the end, they have the miniature of
1: the blimp. Oh, really? And you can, like, see it in glass. Well, in Queens, you've been to the same place, the the, the Museum the, of the Moving Image. Yeah, they have the pyramid.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what I
1: mean? I went to see the Muppets exhibit there a couple of years ago, and they have the pyramid building there, and that's amazing. And then the spinner car is... Uh, it, used is to be, it
2: used to be on the MGM Studios... Oh yeah, Orlando.
1: Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, the, yeah. The backlot tour, which I had. Yeah, that that was sitting there, but it's now permanently next like a to Seattle like, next to the
2: Rocketeer. Yeah, they had uh, the
1: Dick Tracy cars from the Dick Tracy. They had the spinner car. They had a couple other. You know, the, the 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 bulldog. Oh yeah, cafe the, the from cafe from Rocketeer. Um, and it's another thing in the movie too. You realize that people. Only police kind of had the spinners and other people just drive regular cars. But if you're rich enough, you can get a license for kind of a, a flying yeah. car. And that kind of seems realistic in the future. Which is like,
2: that's the idea. It's like, you know, we see Tyrell in the in the pyramid, but we see these big buildings in the background that were beautiful map paintings. But the idea of like, if you're rich, you really never go below the 60th yeah. floor. Yeah, which is
1: another uh, theme that we talked about in Soylent Green. Yeah. You know, the, the chaos on the uh, on the actual, and, and the dirt and the filth. And that's something even I think in, the fourth uh, Night of the Living Dead movie. The uh, what's that? Oh yeah, um, yeah, Land of the Dead. Land of the Dead. That's yeah. like Dennis Hopper and all the elitists are living in like a in enclosed tower, tower yeah. you know, and then and they don't ever have to. But that know. was
2: kind of the idea. Was like, you know regular people live on the at street level but yeah. the rich live in them because of the flying cars they never actually have to go below yeah they just like they just, the 60th floor of a high rise they all live you know miles a mile above everybody else
1: uh Decker's gun is a real gun it was like a double trigger bolt action rifle that they just cut the stock and the the uh, barrel off of and uh, it was heavier than a real gun and it shot something like something crazy like a 5.56 millimeter bullet and uh, it was thought to be lost for 25 years until some private collector surfaced with the original and it sold in 2009 for $270,000. Uh, our quick what if game, the original screenwriter wrote, because we were talking about film noir, he wrote the original script with the idea of Robert Mitchum playing the role of Decker because um, he kind of saw, you know, the film noir aspect and, and uh, yeah, Mitchum. He, Mitchum uh, was old by then, but still yeah, well, capable. Yeah, he could have done, in the 70s, he might have been able to pull it off, but he's in great, you know, out of the past, and he's in a couple Philip Marlowe movies in the 70s, and they were think, he was thinking also of Sterling Hayden playing the Tyrrell character, and even when uh, Philip K. Dick wrote the book, he was thinking, if it was ever adapted at the time, he was thinking of Gregory Peck playing Deckard, um and Grace Slick playing Rachel and I forget who his idea of the maybe it was Sterling Hayden was his his idea of the uh of playing Tyrell. And um the what if game they they were talking about Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman. briefly because they were looking for like a different look and a different idea of going at it. Yeah, and like they
2: not typical leading man. Yeah, and he
1: was they were entertaining and he was talking about it for a minute and they also They thought Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, Tom Lee Jones, Schwarzenegger, Pacino, Burt Reynolds. Um, And they also, with... What's her face? Daryl Hannah. They had some real famous people that actually um, auditioned and didn't get the part. Yeah, there were a couple of... uh
2: For Rachel, they had this actress named Nina Axelrod that I think is significant for sleepover movie fans because she's in Motel Hell and Critters 3. Yep. She's also in a movie that I happen to like called Roller (laughs) Boogie. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, for Pris, one of the people that you can see on the special features that they, you can see some of her screen tests is Stacey Nelkin, who is a Saturday Night Movie Sleepover alum for Halloween 3. Yeah. Uh, But uh, also, I think worth noting that... A friend, uh, authorized,
1: there are authorized sequel books. Oh, yes, that is definitely worth. Friends of Philip K. Dick did sequels in the 80s. A friend
2: of Philip K. Dick's named K.W. Jeter, or Jeter, I guess, was given permission by the Dick... uh,
1: yeah he was family dick was really against because he read a first draft of the script he hated it he thought it was stupid but then he read people's version he kind of liked it and then he before he died saw previews they cut together 20 minutes of footage special effects and he loved the world he said oh my god it looks great as well as he thought that harrison ford he's like that's who i always visioned as deckard so he was kind of he died. I don't know, maybe a couple months before the movie actually came out in '82, but he signed off on it. Yeah. But like, so you're eventually, saying.
2: I guess in the '90s they got published anyway. It was Blade Runner Two: The Edge of Human, Blade Runner Three: Replicant Night, uh, came out in 1996, and then in 2000, Blade Runner Four: Eye and Talent. Which I guess these are sequels to the book, but they also start, to my uh, best of, the, of what I could find, uh, since I didn't read them yet. Uh, start t- bringing in things from the movie, kind of bridging
1: the yeah. book and the movie. And bringing in other characters and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, they did a video game in the late 90s too, and they brought back um, James Hong, they brought back uh, Byron James, uh, Sean Young for voice work, and even maybe Omos, I think, in it. And uh, there's even like sidequ- s- sequel, sidequels, they're calling it, and that soldier movie with uh, Kurt Russell, which I've never seen, remember that world? Yeah, but yeah. They say that is supposed to be within the Blade Runner world, huh. you know, like <laughs> I've seen that Moony movie yeah. many times, but I never kind of they said it's like a, a sidequel. and then also in the Prometheus Ridley Scott movie, when they were doing the special features, the little things that came out to promote the movie, there are mentions in the Whaling Corporation of Tyrell, so there's, they're kind of connecting the yeah, worlds yeah. of the Tyrell and. Uh,
2: I also will say, because I just watched the live action version of Ghost in the Shell with...
1: Uh, oh, just so
2: many, yeah. face. But, I, you know, I, I knew some of the older animes from the from the 90s of Ghost in the Shell. And I never read the manga, but it's so... Funny. It's Blade just, Runner. Yeah, you can yeah. so see the influence of Blade well, Runner.
1: You uh, brought up my thing, Neuromancer William Gibson before. He said, um, I think I said this before, is he went to see Blade Runner and he was like, shit, this is exactly what I have in my head. So he had to change it. But I think... He's, his book is very lesser known to the novice, but uh, him and Blade Runner are the two books in the 80s that, like you said, um, his book coined cyberspace, and that really gets you matrix. But the two of them together, Blade Runner the film and his book Neuromancer, really begets that whole cyberpunk, matrix, future, Ghost in the Shell, the yeah. animated movies of the 90s. You know, you have a lot of influences there from... Uh,
2: uh, I will say that uh, part of my research, I found there's this great site called brmovie.com. So instead of Blade Runner, B-R-movie.com. B-R- yeah. B-Arthur. Br-movie. Br- yeah. Uh, and they have all kinds of answers to frequently asked questions, but you can download uh, earlier versions of the script and read them. Oh, we should put a link in the yeah, site. Yeah, but in, c- you know, in case you don't make it to the site, you can always look that up, but we'll put a link yeah. when we post. Uh, Paul M. Salmon, you see a lot uh, in these special features, and in, he does commentaries for them because he was a writer for the magazine Cinema Fantastique, which is, oh, a, yes. which is a favorite of us sleepover movie lovers. Yeah. And he was hired to go and do uh, a write-up on Blade Runner. And that article that he started writing be- ended up being expanded into the book Future Noir, The Making of Blade
1: Runner. Oh, that's one of the first like, quintessential. So we see him
2: a lot, and not only in the special features of the dvd set but in any other documentary you might find on youtube or whatever and also worth noting and i wish we started doing the actual research because i would have had this in time for this cast because i just ordered it uh you know and i believe we might have brought up this the marvel super special issues in as something in the past but the there's a series of Marvel comics where they put out these big issues and some of them are Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, Raiders yeah. of Lost Like, There's a Blade Runner one where the cover is done by uh, Storanko and it's a 45-page comic book And we were just talking about Storanko. <laughs> uh, yeah, because we talked about him in Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. for doing concept drawings.
1: And then John Alvin did the, uh, the post, the theatrical post it for the Blade Runner proper movie. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people know about the notorious problems um, Harrison had with Scott, really Scott on set Scott had with Had with the crew oh. they The crew and they, That's the whole t-shirt thing Which if you don't know I mean we don't really have time To get into now um, you So know, much to cover Yeah uh, Dara Hannah just saw The uh, Werner Herzog Nosferatu So that's the idea of her Getting her painting Her eyes black For that scene Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I think Frank Lloyd Wright Was a huge influence Of um his Nighthawks painting as well as his Mm -hmm. architecture. That's why you get a lot of that. They wanted to make, especially Deckard's apartment seem very claustrophobic with all that kind of like stonework and stuff. And you see that a lot in the Tyrell room as well, you know. And all that light too, they talk about, we talked about that in the Warriors too, where they talk about, um, you know, if, 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 if especially if you're doing something like on a scale as this, and you don't have the budget, what what helps you get away is a lot of smoke. Have it shoot it at night and have everything wet. Yeah, yeah. and that was the DP and everybody lighting guy. That's the, that's their whole art of getting around stuff. Like you know, um, it's just you you know the visual effects of just make saves money and makes stuff look better. It's just you know, and
2: I will say as as many problems and questionable. Uh, Craziness of Sean Young. I've always had a crush on Sean Young, and I think it stems from this movie. Yeah, she's great, and then a
1: lot of people have problems with her. and Harrison had problems with the work because she was inexperienced, and she, you know, could tell she's uncomfortable. the outtakes. is He's like, like her first thing. And really, Scott had to really coach her. Uh, in each scene of what he wanted and but stuff he like just
2: that, saw her and said, you know, aesthetically, that's exactly
1: what he yeah, wanted. Yeah, he saw her. He said he, she looked like Vivian Lee and he kind of wanted, you know, to I have that fe, that that. I think she's gorgeous in this, and
2: I think she's great. What I was going to say, my other favorite scene, where I said the when Harrison Ford delivers the line, like, "What are they doing?" Yeah, are they, my other favorite scene is when he's telling her, like about her memories. He's like, you ever tell anybody about that? You ever tell Tyrell about the spider? And like the way she kind of breaks down, he's like, ah, it was a cruel joke. I just love that. He's
1: half into it. And then he's half like, 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 forget about it. Or, uh, you know, for like an acting scene. I love
2: that scene. She's so good in it. And he's great in it. I love
1: it. Yeah. And then Ridley too, has had such a sad life in a sense of like his, his older brother uh, died of skin cancer around this time. And he was in pre-pro Dune. And then he left it to do this. And then he
2: wanted to get, jump into something more, he wanted guess, something
1: to, to get his mind off. To, yeah, and he then just we, wanted
2: to work, and Dune was taking too long.
1: And then his idea, this was great for him because about the idea of you know mortality and stuff, and what had happened to his brother who had died. And then we know now, recently a couple years ago, Tony Scott committed suicide. So yeah. That's really tough. I'm sure on the whole family. Uh, I don't know. There's just yeah. There's just tons of other stuff that we just you know we don't have the time to get into.
2: You know, hopefully we gave you a kind of an angle on this that other people don't discuss, and hopefully that angle wasn't too confusing. No,
1: especially <laughs> yeah, and especially I wholeheartedly recommend the book. You know, um, yeah, like I said, I didn't care for the book, but I t- would not
2: tell you not to read it. Like, yeah, I think it's worth reading, especially if you're, especially if you're a fan of Blade Runner. It's totally. Uh, it's a worthwhile read, and they did I a, just didn't particularly love it. But did. as Dion stated, maybe if I read it next year, or you know, if yeah, I read might, it a few more times, it might grow on me.
1: You know, like the uh, they did a great comic book adaptation of the entire thing with his entire text, and I, I think it won an award. Maybe in 2010, they did it 24 issues, and yeah. it's in an omnibus. Uh, I mean, at the end of the book, too, the, that Buster Friendly guy, he I, which. Excuse me, it's really confusing. He admits to everyone that mercerism is fake, so you yeah. don't know where this is going. If it's government won't run, why would they say this? So there's a lot of other problems that go I've, in. Yeah, you know, i read it's that really it's
2: like he feels he's in competition for humanity's mind. Yeah,
1: so he's trying to just you know. So he's trying to. But you, think there'd, mercers, sort of regu- you think there'd be some sort of you think there's some sort of regulation yeah. since they're the only two striving things that they're yeah. controlled kind of by well, that's the same a person. Yeah, and then it gets so sad because at the end of the book he. Uh, you know, that's 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 what I wanted to say, too. The one thing I didn't—I had a lot of problems with the BBC thing that we have a link to. But at the end of the BBC thing, he says, I went home and I threw my electric uh, um, uh, sheep off the roof. And I felt that was such a cop-out because I don't feel like either the book character or the movie character would do that. Yeah, yeah. Because the whole point of the movie is that he's getting empathy for these— androids and these robots so, yeah. so he would say he because at the end of the book he 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 just gets so like uh disinfatuated or just dis whatever for life he leaves and he goes and becomes kind of mercer in a scene where he's talking to mercer he's going up the hill and, he, and then he realizes what the hell am i doing i should get back and then he finds a toad and he's so overjoyed he comes home and he's like look, look what i found like we said about the spider i found yeah, a toad yeah. to his wife and he goes to crash and his wife flips the toad over and she finds a circuit board she opens it and they find out it's fake and who the know who the hell knows how it got out there but it's indeed a fake yeah, yeah. you know and then so she calls at the animal company hey my husband is um you know has a toad and uh you know we want to take care of it because he absolutely loves it so i find it yeah, completely yeah. disingenuous that in in the radio play he would go home and throw the the thing off the roof yeah. the last bit i will say about the book which i thought was really cool was we talked about the idea of him sleeping with Rachel and then her messing with him and telling him about... So after he retires the first couple things in the book, he goes and gets that goat. You yeah, know, yeah. And he gets this beautiful goat. And the wife's like, how are we going to pay for he this? He buys a real goat. He buys a real goat and, you know, is, to replace his whole the motiv- sheep.
2: His whole motivation sheep. For, for taking these jobs as a bounty hunter is he gets $1,000 a head to kill these... Uh, androids, and then that money will give him enough money to buy a real. Animal. Yeah,
1: and aside from it being a status symbol, he also hopes that it will help his wife boost his wife out of this yeah. depression, Take and care it does. Something real, and she's over the moon that they buy this goat, and it's so fucked up that he leaves to go retire the rest of. Them. He comes home after he retired, batting all them, and you find out that Rachel, after leaving him and sleeping with him and having the whole confrontation where he, you know, she reveals that she's fucked everybody else for the same motivation. She comes to the thing and throws his go- uh, goat yeah, off the like roof.
2: They, yeah, they keep the they keep their animals and their electric animals on the roof.
1: Because that's the only place you have, like, yeah. you know, a little area. So she yeah.
2: comes and flies her car onto the roof. And, real... <laughs> and throws their real goat off the it's roof. It's so
1: fucked up. And it's almost like a very vindictive. Yeah, it's another... Itch. Yeah. So it's another great aspect I loved about the book that it's just... There's so many things that I wish could have translated. But you can't. But maybe this... Begs the question that maybe they can turn this into a series like they did Westworld, and you, if you had ten or twelve episodes, you can you can explore all this and much yeah. more. But you know, knowing people nowadays, they'll completely do a whole different fucking thing. You're like, well, just do the book like it's supposed to. Be, don't <laughs> don't do something else. So why you You sons of bitches? So yeah, that's it. You know, it's it's and if you like, we said if you if you like. If you like what we've been talking about, you have the original book to read. You have the um, graphic novel that is actually the complete text, so you're not losing anything. You have the bridge version, which is the BBC radio play that we'll put Mm -hmm. a link to. We apparently have this 1982 Marvel Comics adaptation of the movie itself. And you have the box set of over six or seven movies, including the freaking dangerous days Three and a half hour three and a half hour doc plus all the other docs on it so you have a lot of stuff you can go dig in that we just did there's a pretty decent uh,
2: BBC one too that you can find online on like YouTube and Vimeo that was yeah. for like BBC television in like uh, 2000 or early 2000s yeah That's it's worth seeing before the final cut
1: it's really all of it's all really kind good of stuff all you know and then all the p- p- questions you know the the ambiguous questions about stuff I mean the only swear in the movie uh, does Rugger Hauer say father or fucker to him at the end when he's killing Joe Turkle? Uh, I love Joe Turkle. Cause I don't see him. Evidently, I didn't realize he's in paths of glory. He's one of the guys that puts on trial the Stanley Kubrick movie. And we see later on, he's the he's bartender shining. in the shining, you know? So um, it's a small cast, but it's a great cast. And I think everybody was uh, beautiful in the movie and we've, uh, we've uh, talked about it before, but the actor who played Sebastian—he pops up and member the Batman animated series episode with the oh yeah, with the, robotic, the, voice yeah the, the, the robotic yeah, the robotic replicants and that. So it's really good. Yeah, great cast. Uh, Overall, I think everybody did a great job. And love James Hong. Yeah, he's great. He comes out. He's in <laughs> a big trouble in a couple years. in and every and movie ever made, where they have an Asian. Yeah, they need an Godless Asian guy. I, I see your eye. I made your eye. So it's really. Do you think he dies in the movie? Yeah. I know they say in deleted scenes they uh, they they so, say so, they yeah. say he find they find his body, but I didn't know if, if you know if that's supposed to mean he uh, whatever. But uh, and and we I hope I, we've done justice. We, yeah, you know,
2: we, we tried to take a different angle. Hopefully, that angle with juxtaposing against the book didn't get too confusing. For yeah, you
1: all. but we always try to do a unique angle, so we we're not just the same you know, thing out there. But as we said, there's been so much written and talked about this movie. You know, there's entire classes and books done on this and there's...
2: So this is a little different complete, kind of episode yeah. of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. There's so
1: many analytical aspects, but we like to compare source material like we did with the Warriors. Or we, or we the, like to compare... The movie cuts. <laughs> novelizations. No, yeah, Novelizations <laughs> as well and tell you what's going on in there.
2: sometimes have from... Uh, explain
1: stuff that, that don't make it.
2: Cuts, uh, earlier versions of the script. Great score yes Vangale- Vangelis or Vangelis which wasn't which
1: wasn't out for 10 or 12 years and that's kind of uh, upsetting to think that like that you know if that's a, it's a really good score and I think you couldn't get your hands on it there was bootlegs of it for years until like the early 90s they finally put that sucker on I think their album or whatever it's a synth score but it's it's really uh, an example of that you know that uh, 80s decade of that kind of synth scores and stuff yeah, like it's that it's a beautiful it's really cool. score yeah and it compliments the movie very well and uh you know, it's very good. So we, we're over the three-hour mark again here. So thank you very much. Uh, we hope we haven't woke my parents up again. Yeah. Because they're not going to let us come back. But, you know, in in, in a couple weeks or even next week, we have a huge we're
2: diving into
1: Halloween extravaganza. We're going to scare the poops out of you. So we hope you uh, come back if you dare <laughs> on another episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers.
0: Later.